Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. <laughs> BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. I'm always interested in who my kids surround themselves with. I'm not talking about like our family or the school classmates who, you know, are selected with them. Like, I'm not talking about like who gets put with them or who's around them. I'm talking about when they have a choice. Who do they surround themselves with? You kind of get an idea of who your kid is when you look at, you know, the friends they pick, the company they keep. You know, what kind of, uh, you know, so to speak, if, uh, if, the, uh, if we're thinking of it in biblical terms, who are your disciples? Who's your board of governors? You know, with my college kid, when she went off for her freshman year of college, it was really interesting to me on that first visit that we had when we popped up for a weekend. And I said, hey, why don't you grab a couple of your friends and we'll go out and get some tacos. I wasn't interested in the tacos. I was interested in who is my my kid hanging out with? What's her friend group like? What are they about? What's the vibe that they have? You know, the checks and balances of every person involve who you surround yourself with. Ask yourself that. Who's on your board of governors? Who do you surround yourself with? And I'm asking that question today of Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant, in the latest report, is uh, apparently asking the Nets owner to either trade him or fire Steve Nash, the coach, and Sean Marks, the general manager. Uh, face-to-face meeting that apparently took place with the Nets owner, Joe Sy over the weekend. Kevin Durant reiterated his trade request, according to The Athletic. Uh, He says he does not have faith in the direction of the team. They spoke in London on Saturday. Good place to have a meeting. But it took place a year to the day that Kevin Durant agreed to a four-year, $198 million contract extension with the Nets. And this comes barely over a month after his initial trade request that came on June the 30th. He's now entering the first season of that extension, and he apparently wants out of it. Um, Kevin Durant's legacy may be that he's a great player. It may be that he's a, he's a generational talent. But he's burning any and every bridge and any and every bit of goodwill that people might have for him by acting like this. This is his legacy. And I wonder who he surrounds himself with. Is there anyone in Kevin Durant's circle who can go, hey, Kev, you're sounding a little nutty right now. You're in the first year of this deal. You don't know how this is going to play. Like, seriously, he refers to himself on Twitter, a friend of mine noticed this, as a god, and I went and looked at it. He is not uh, open to feedback. He's not a collaborative guy. He has got burner accounts, we know that, and he hears the noise. He's got rabbit ears for a superstar player. The... I think the legacy of Kevin Durant, the image of Kevin Durant, 
is ultimately not going to be about what a generational talent he was. I think it's going to be about how he destructed and self-destructed any kind of uh, rhythm that he had, the arc of his career, the trajectory. Like he goes somewhere and he wants out in this and he leaves Golden State and he goes to Golden State, he leaves Golden State, goes to Brooklyn, he signs the extension, he wants out of the extension, he's demanding a trade. And in the end, I'm left looking at Kevin Durant going, at some point, buddy, you're the problem. What is the legacy of Kevin Durant? What would you tell him if he were in your close circle? I know what you'd tell him. You'd, you'd lean into him and you'd go, look, Kevin, you're a great player. You're going to be a Hall of Fame player. You're going to be outstanding. What do you want to do in this last stretch of your career? Because right now, you're looking like you are wobbling. And you are looking like a thin-skinned, uh, insecure, um, delusional talent player and in the end I'm left wondering if this is going to be the legacy of Kevin Durant and in fact while you're watching Steph Curry sort of you know do summer camps and show kids how to shoot threes from the corner or Damian Lillard give a great speech and John Calipari at Kentucky using Lillard's speech going yeah this is what we want for the culture of our program and you know be humble and all this stuff that that uh, you see players who have their act together doing in the, min- in the middle of that, Kevin Durant is busy being destructive and insecure and delusional. You can't refer to yourself as a god on Twitter and then re- go fly to London and tell the owner, you know, I want you to get rid of the coach or I want you to get rid of the GM or I'm not coming back. And, oh, by the way, you're about to start this extension. It's like a $200 million extension. Choose between me or them, according to the piece in The Athletic. I think it's really disappointing, but I think it's a cautionary tale. Like, look, just because someone's a great player, great athlete, like we know this, right? We know just because they are great on the field or on the court or on the diamond doesn't mean they have it together off the diamond. But I'm going to tell you, like, in most cases, they've got an agent. They've got a handler. They've got a friend. They've got a family member who will step in and go, hey, you're sounding a little crazy here. Let's take a deep breath. Do you really want to be known as the guy who signed the $198 million deal and then said, it's me or them? Well, what do you think the owner of that Brooklyn franchise is going to do here? There's not a win for him out there. Because if he sides with Kevin Durant, he's essentially handing the keys over to uh, a guy who you know, hasn't had success on his own. He's had individual success, but not team success that he's built. He, uh, he is a, if I can't beat him, I'll join him kind of player and if he if he trades Durant he's going to get pennies on the dollar for a talent that he paid top dollar for extending that contract offer there's not a winning scenario here for Joe Sy. and I think in the end if I am the Brooklyn Nets I got to make a decision here it's not a decision between Kevin Durant and Steve Nash or Sean Marks like the people will change over we know that from watching like the Blazers franchise like people come and go and I've talked to GMs about this like You know, media members will also come and go. Fans will also come and go, although the the arc of a fan's career with a team can be 50, 60, 70 years, and a player like Kevin Durant, you know, how many years does he have left? A couple, few, handful, five, where he matters? I don't know. I'm just left going, if his legacy at all mattered to him, he would be a little more self-aware. But what Kevin Durant really needs, it's the same thing that when I went to go visit my kid at college 
Like, I looked at her circle of friends, and I said, okay, like, she's friends with, uh, you know, this person and that person. Okay, here's a kid, you know, oh, she met this kid. Oh, how do you know my daughter? Oh, okay. And I, and I was kind of surveying who she was by examining her friends. In Kevin Durant's case, I think he needs a friend. He needs somebody. He needs an ally in his corner, and maybe he won't listen to him at this point of his career. But it's really what he needs. Like, you know. I don't know what you do, Stephen and Sean, but, you know, let's say I'm going to leave the house and I got a shirt that is a questionable fashion choice. I will turn to Anna or I will turn to one of the daughters and I'll go, hey, does this shirt make me look like an idiot? And they'll go, yeah, it does. And I go change or they'll go, nah, you're good. And I go out the door and it's not the end all be all. But man, if you don't have a voice in your circle. They can tell you you look fat in those jeans or whatever it is or, hey, you're acting like an idiot. If you don't have that person in your circle that you trust, then you don't have a circle. we got a great show for you today. Chip Towers will be joining us, Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He's going to talk about Georgia, Oregon. He's boots on the ground in the state of Oregon. He'll be joining us coming up in just a few minutes. Anna will be along later in the program. I have so much to talk about on the Pac-12 front, some questions to answer, some questions to ask. But let's start with Kevin Durant. Stephen, Kevin Durant needs a friend. Why don't you get into his circle and tell him to stop acting like a fool? Well, I wish I could, John, but I think the problem with guys like Kevin Durant, and I kind of understand why he is the way he is because he is so good at basketball. And you talked about just the elite level that he has a skill why would he respect anybody else's opinion when it comes to basketball? Like he, if I was that good, I would probably think I know everything there is to know about basketball, but he does need that friend because we all need that people, right? Like I have my wife, I have my brother, I have, you know, my brother and sister-in-law. Like I will ask them questions about my life. Like, is this a good decision? Should I wear that? Like you said, and I respect them. I don't know that Kevin Durant necessarily respects anybody enough to actually listen to what they have to say when it comes to basketball, because he has made some good choices. Right? I would argue that going to Golden State and winning a championship was the best move he could have made for his career because he finally got to that pinnacle, he got to that championship level, finals MVP, all that kind of stuff. But then he goes and he plays with Kyrie Irving, and it's been terrible since then. So he needs that guy. I don't know that there is that person on this earth just because of how talented he actually is playing basketball. Yeah, but I think if even if you are talented, there's talented players, and there's talented musicians and artists, and I still think... You know, as the talent, yes, you're signing your name at the uh, on the corner of that painting, or you know, it's you sitting in the first chair in at the symphony, and you know, ultimately you that has to get up there. But you've got people in your corner that will tell you, hey, this doesn't work, and you have to you have to be able to trust those people. But I think you're right. I think the problem sometimes in sports is that the success comes before the individuals are fully formed human beings. Like they're not adults. Like the brain is still. Forming. And Kevin Durant is a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, is told that, you know, he's a god. He's great. And, but, you know, and then he goes on Twitter as, you know, a guy in his 20s, and, you know, and suddenly he's declaring himself a god on the basketball court. And everybody goes, okay, yeah, he's got great confidence. But I wonder in the end if you are that out of touch, if, you, if he really does believe that he's like a basketball god, uh, that, you know, that, that's not the spirit of great competition. That's not somebody that I think can – uh, you know, if you don't have the humility to say, I don't have all the answers, like even when I go to write a column and I know it's good, I will bounce it off a couple of people. And, and, and often they're not like writing experts. It's just I want some feedback. What worked? What didn't work? How could it be better? I don't think Kevin Durant is getting that anywhere in his life because I think you have to be delusional. 
to go to London and tell the owner, hey, I'm in year one of this contract. Uh, I know I joined the Nets, but, um, you know, I, it's either me or them. And if I'm Joe Sy, I, I leave Kevin Durant no choice. Like, you're coming to Brooklyn. It's not really your call who the coach is. It's not your call who the GM is. And ultimately, that might make me a bad NBA owner, but I'll sleep well at night. Uh, no, I agree. And I think it is a problem just, you know, he's 21 years old. He averages 30 points a game in the NBA. So I think in his mind, like, again, I just go back to yeah. he may just think he's better than everyone and he knows more about basketball, but it's such a bad choice because you got to have someone in your corner that tells you you're wrong. And it's always going to be – that's kind of NBA culture, AAU culture with basketball is everyone's going to pump you up and tell you you're going to go D1, you're going to go to the NBA, you're going to play college basketball. But it's like that's not how it works. That's just to pump you up and get you confidence and hopefully you know, you work after that. But I think that's just a lot of the culture with NBA and with Kevin Durant. It's just – it's sad because it's proven out to be – he obviously has the talent and the skills to be one of the best players of all time and the best player on a championship team but he's never going to be that leader. When he won the championship, it was because Steph Curry, Draymond Green, Clay Thompson, they're the leaders of that team. It wasn't Durant that was leading the team. It was those three guys that took all the pressure off of him, and that's when he excelled. Now when he goes to these other teams, he just he just can't do it. And it's just unfortunate when you see a guy with this much talent not be able to you know be that leader or captain of a team. Steven, let me ask you, because you worked inside an NBA organization and you were involved in film and scouting and other things, but do you find that, the N- typical NBA athlete can relate the way normal people can, or are there? Is it case by case? I think it's case by case. I-, I was told one time that the hardest thing to do in the NBA is to change, is to change your game because all these guys were so good in college and high school that when they go to the NBA, they can't be that star player. And so for the guys that do succeed and the guys that play double-digit years in their career, it's because they change. And I think it goes to your point of they listen and they take feedback and they get better doing certain things where there's some guys, you know, I can think of a guy that used to play in Portland, Vaughn Wafer. He was a guy that could get 15 points a night, but he couldn't do anything else and he was out of the league in three years. There's lots of guys that can score 15 points a game in the NBA, but for a bad team. He didn't change his game to become a shooter or a defender or anything like that. So I think it goes along with Durant, right? Like, if he would listen to other people and take some advice, I think he could have elevated himself to that level. But as I was told, that is the hardest thing to think about in the NBA when evaluating players. Yeah, and I think if you are a player who has had that success over and over and over again, like look at the great players in the game who who have risen beyond maybe their abilities. And look at a guy like Michael Jordan. You know, maybe the fact that he was a late bloomer benefited him. You know, he was a kid in high school that wasn't the best player at, you know, age 13, 14, and he became the best player. Maybe it benefited him because he was always striving, probably, uh, you know, coming from a place of insecurity and fear. You know, he talked about his brother and the rivals with the rivalry he had with his brother and how he, you know, he, he was determined to prove everyone wrong. I mean, I think it just goes a long way. If you're trying to improve yourself as a person or an athlete, hell, look, or, look at your circle. Are, you know, are, is your circle making you better? I would venture to say that Kevin Durant's circle is not giving him any advice. And if they are giving him advice, it's bad advice. Yeah, and I think it's it's easy to say, oh, if I was in his situation, I would do it. But you know what? He's made $307 million, and by the time this contract's over, he'll be at $500 million. So he's made some right choices. So it, you yeah. know, I understand where he's coming from of thinking this way. But to ultimately get to that ultimate level, like the Jordan-type level, where LeBron level, you got to take some criticism. Yeah, I think in the end his legacy is going to be that he was insecure 
and he was uh, a little out there. Chip Towers coming up next, Atlanta Journal-Constitution beat reporter. He's covered Georgia football for 35 years. There's nobody better to talk Georgia football, and Chip is in the state of Oregon. What's he doing here? He'll join us next. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. My next guest has covered Georgia football for nearly four decades. More than three decades, not quite four. But Chip Towers knows his stuff. He's the dean on the beat. And guess what? He's in the state of Oregon. Chip Towers now joining us. Where are you right now, Chip Towers? Uh, let's see, John. I'm, I'm, I'm on one of the multi-levels of the... Um, of the which building is who is this building named for uh i can't remember uh which building i'm in <laughs> quite i, I just I, i'm a, a floor down from the hall of champions but you know i'm getting my first up close and personal look at you know oregon's facilities i have heard a thing or two about oregon's facilities before coming here and uh actually got uh, uh a good little tour this morning nate Bruder took me around and um showed me some of the sites and, and, and things around him. We just got back from a practice observation. So uh, here I am. You are uh, looking at the facilities. Give me an idea. How do they compare to Georgia's? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I, I, I won't say that Oregon's are incomparable, uh, but though I've heard that used before for, you know, the, the facilities here and obviously – you know, the Knight family and the Nike family, uh, obviously they like modern and they like facilities, and you can see it around here. But Georgia just opened a new $80 million football building. So, um, you know, one of the uh, criticisms before Kirby Smart got to Georgia was that they were behind in facilities. Uh, he's moved very quickly to catch them up. In, in the time that Kirby Smart has been the head coach at uh, – Georgia, they uh, opened a $31 million indoor practice facility. They did a $63 million um, locker room and recruiting lounge addition at Sanford Stadium, and they did this $80 million football facility, and there is uh, you, you know, more stuff coming down the line. So Georgia's trying to make up for lost time. But, you know, it is really just the attention to detail, the modern-esque, shiny things, the Mariota room. You know, he's uh, uh, probably going to be the starting quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons this year. So, I, you know, I, I took a lot of pictures of his Heisman and that uh, that Marriott, uh, Marietta space that they, they have down there on the main level. And, uh, yeah, I thought I had all the names of the buildings uh, down pat, and uh, now I've forgotten which one I've been in and which one I haven't been in. <laughs> Chip Towers with us, Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You're doing a series on your visit. Uh, give us an idea. You got into town, I think, yesterday. You got to the facility. You got to see Dan Lanning's availability. Uh, give us an idea of what, what that's been like. What are your early returns? Well, uh, you, know, I, you know, just getting back from practice, you know, the first thing that's really interesting comparing practices, I think back at Georgia they got 11 minutes of practice observation yesterday. got – 18 minutes here, but it's the first time I've ever had to put on a white vest 
labeling me a media uh, member. I thought somebody was going to shoot me out there. And uh, the team is kind of considerably removed. I didn't bring my binoculars out there. So I was like, that tiny dot, is that Bo Nix over there? Is that Bo Nix? You know, (laughs) uh, so I was kind of dealing with with that kind of stuff. But listen, um, the hospitality, they talk about Southern hospitality. It's been terrific out here. I can't tell you, I kind of had a hard time you know, obviously being on a, uh, the separate coast, you know, kind of getting Dan nailed down, getting Oregon's uh, sports communication operations nailed down about when I could come in here and, and what kind of availability I'd have. I did get a chance to uh, meet with Coach Lanning earlier today. Um, you know, you'll be able to read some of that in the, in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution later. Uh, and, um, you know, supposed to be some players at the end of the day today. And I'm staying here tomorrow. Now, this morning, John, uh, the first thing I wrote was was quoting some guy that writes something called the bald-faced truth. Uh, (laughs) So I I did quote somebody early on, and then I took recommendations from that guy, and I've already been been to Spencer's Butte. Uh, I've been, you know, you got to go see uh, Pree's Rock, right? Uh, So uh, I've been there. Um, I neither ran to the top of Spencer's Butte, nor did I run, run on Priest Trail, but I did see the, the, those places. And last night, you know, I got a pizza and a, I got a, a, a pizza and a stout beer, uh, from, from Tracktown Pizza. So yeah. I'm trying to check as many boxes as I, I possibly can. I haven't found Hayward Field yet. And then now I've, I've, it's been explained to me, oh, it's not, it's not over there where you are right now. It's in another area. Uh, so I definitely, that's a bucket list for me. And, hey, Austin Stadium was a bucket list for me, but I wanted to see see it in all its raucous glory. Uh, it was kind of serene there uh, today. I, I, I Maybe, George, I asked, I tried to pin down landing about you're going to get a series going with Georgia, right? you gotta get a you got to get a home and home. And, of course, he, he uh, avoided that like the plague. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I, I, it really is a bucket list for me to watch, to see a game live in Austin Stadium. Maybe that'll happen before I leave this earth. Give me an idea, because you knew him as a coordinator. Now he is a first-time, first-year head coach. Do you see any differences in Dan Lanning, any maturing, uh, you know, as you look at a guy in charge of a program? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, a little bit, but because you got to understand uh, – as well as I feel like I know Dan Lanning, and, I, you know, I've told this story multiple times over. I, I was the first to tell the story of his journey from, uh, what was it, Branson, Missouri, or whatever it was, to uh, to to Pittsburgh to get his first job as an analyst. Uh, I, I told that years ago, but much of that was done by um, friends and, and, you know, former peers who had coached with him, especially back there in the high school and uh, Jewel College ranks. Uh, but while he was at Georgia, you know, I think I, we only got like six opportunities with him. Uh, obviously, I had a little bit of interaction with him right before he got this job. But, uh, but short of that, you know, I think that was an unknown about Dan Lanning. How is he going to handle all those other responsibilities of a head coach? Um, by all accounts he's handling them very very well i think he's an exceptional speaker uh i think he's endearing his personality now he's a little you know uh 
a little bit of a cliche, you know, uh, cliche-ish. I like to say a lot of these guys, you, 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 and, and I'm not saying this about Dan, but I'm saying in the business, you know, you ask a question and it's kind of, do, 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 which cliche do I apply to this question? <laughs> um, you know, it wasn't like that. Uh, you know, he, he gave me some access. He showed a little bit of vulnerability um, and, and a lot more than I saw at Georgia because we would get him, uh, as defensive coordinator, we'd get him once in the preseason camp, and then we'd get him once before the bowl game, uh, either coordinator, offensive or defensive coordinator. So um, I think maybe a total of seven times I might have talked to him in that capacity while he was defensive coordinator at Georgia. Chip Towers with us, Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The, you know, you're out here kind of on a fact-finding recon series. It's, I think it's going to be fantastic. I, I subscribed to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution just to read it, Chip, this morning, and I appreciate what you're doing. Uh, but give me an idea of what you're trying to learn about Dan Lanning on this trip. Well, you know, I don't know how deep I'm going to get. You know, the, the truth is I really hope to get out here before camp started and we just weren't able to make it happen, as, as you wrote in your uh, uh, time from spending with Landing. You know, he's been spread a little thin, really, ever since he took this job. Plus, he, you know, took two family vacations in the one little spot that you really can uh, in the summer. So I just hadn't been able to nail him down until he got into camp. And so this is this is a very compressed situation. So, you know, I'm probably not getting as deep down uh, into, you know, Dan Landing, the head coach, as I wanted to. I mean, you know, it, the funny thing is even like, a, you know, like you're going to run out in, in front of the team, you know, before the game, uh, you know, the, 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 he's never worn a headset during a game. I mean, in, in his, in the entire, I mean, I mean, the headset, obviously he's one of the defensive coordinators headset, but I'm talking about the head coach's headset, even going back to, to, you know, River South high that he was in, 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 in Missouri, um, I, no, I think I take that back. I think he was head coach of the third grade basketball team, but you know, other than that, he hasn't been head coach, so he doesn't know a lot. Like, hey, what are you going to wear? You know, uh, you know, you know, what's your routine going to be, and all that kind of stuff. But the flip side of that, uh, so out here on the the one the uh, I don't know whether it's north, south, east, or west, but on the left side wall of the left practice field at the facility, they now have the. Uh, you know, the team DNA out there painted on a windscreen, uh, which, uh, you, you know, is very Kirby-esque. Kirby, had, he calls it their, their DNA. Um, uh, Kirby called it the pillars, right? And uh, so connection, toughness, growth, and sacrifice. That just is breaking news, John. That just went up this past Thursday um, here at, uh, at the University of Oregon. He's applying a lot of the templates. You know, obviously he did admit in my time with him that, that, you know, he thinks of himself, yeah, as part of the smart coaching tree. But, you know, he had time with Nick Saban and he's had time with uh, at Memphis and, and, and other places. So, you know, it's not all that. He's putting his own applications on those. And then the fact that, you know, we have access to uh, some assistant coaches today, tomorrow, and they have considerably here in the preseason is different than at Georgia. Kirby, uh you know, controlled the message, uh, so to speak, when it came to his assistance and, and had very, very limited availability to the media for them. Chip, uh, you mind hanging out for one? I'd like to take a commercial break. When we come back, I want to ask you about Georgia, what they lost in the NFL draft, how they might match up with Oregon, and 
and kind of get a feel from you and the expertise you have over the years covering a great SEC program. Plus, I want to hear some stories. I want to hear about Vince Dooley and Herschel Walker. So if you have a few more minutes, you mind sticking around? <laughs> yeah, I'll stick around. All right, Chip Towers, more with Chip coming up. Leave it here. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Chip Towers of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution has been kind enough to stick around for another segment. Thanks for doing that, Chip. But, uh, you know, we're going to give you a couple of suggestions, too, by the way, for listeners who have now uh, tweeted or texted and said, hey, he needs to go here or there. I'll give you a couple of those at the end of the segment. But let's talk about Georgia football. What did they lose to the NFL? Where are the questions right now for Kirby Smart's team? Yeah, well, there's uh, there's absolutely no question that's on the defensive side of the ball. I mean, as you just watch the NFL draft, and you know that Georgia had five first-round draft picks off the defense alone, eight uh, draft picks overall off the defense, and 15 in total. Uh, a a record for uh, a uh, a college team in, in in the draft. So pretty incredible. Um, amount of talent that they're going out there now. They've been recruiting at an extremely high level um, the last five years, I think it is, under um, Kirby Smart. Georgia's national recruiting ranking has averaged 2.3 um, with two number one classes, and um, you know they were number <clears throat> three in this past cycle, and they they tend to be in the top five. I think they are right now for the for the class of 23 and all that. So they're recruiting at an extremely high level. But those guys that uh, just went to the NFL, I mean, you're talking about Jordan Davis. You're about, talking about Trayvon Walker, the d- defensive end that went number one overall. You're talking about a trio of inside linebackers. This, I think, is the biggest uh, question mark for Georgia. You had a trio of inside linebackers. And N'Kobe Dean, I mean, he was the uh, – Dick Buckus award winner, so everybody knows about him. But you know, both uh, well, Quay Walker went ahead of him in the draft, and and uh, and um, uh, Channing Tindall went not long after him in the draft. Those are your three inside linebackers, and and Dan Lanning, one of his great things, and I talked about to him about it today, is just personnel, mixing up personnel, finding special specialized roles for everybody in personnel, and. Those linebackers, all three of them played, and they played in different situations, and they played Jack and Money and Will and Mike, and they switched it up. And, you know, um, he might not necessarily be able to do all those kind of things for Oregon. You're not asking me about Oregon right now, but that's what you had in Georgia, juniors and seniors that you could do a lot of different things with between the guys up front and the guys inside middle linebacker. Now, they're – Good shape at outside linebacker, and I think they're in decent shape in the defensive backfield. Though some, I mean, there's there's definitely a lot of uh, uh, there's attrition they're having to deal with in the uh, in the last third of the defense uh, as well. Switch over to the offensive side, and and uh, I actually think, I mean, Georgia's offense ought to be a lot better. Never mind, they have the uh, you, you know the, the uh, six-year senior retor- returning at quarterback, and we'll talk about the the lack of respect Stetson Bennett gets. But, you know, he has a lot of nice pieces around him. Georgia has a ton of offensive linemen. I mean, they lost a couple of guys to the NFL, but Georgia has ridiculously stacked offensive linemen through recruiting 
uh, thanks to Sam Pittman now at Arkansas before him, and then Matt Luke right after that at offensive line. They have lots of offensive linemen, and, um, you know, they lost one of their receivers, Jermaine Burton, to uh, Alabama, but they are loaded uh, at tight end, uh, you know, really four guys, including the leading overall receiver on the team last year with in yards and touchdowns, 14 touchdowns, Brock Bowers at tight end. But um, they have a lot of talent uh, at wide receiver as well. And uh, they lost their top two running backs, but, you know, they call them RBU. Georgia going back, you mentioned Herschel Walker before the break. I mean, really going back to Herschel Walker, Georgia has just uh, just pumped running backs uh, into the NFL one after another after another, whether it's, uh, you know, Todd Gurley or Nick Chubb or Sony Michelle or, or, you know, last year's guys were James Cook and Zamir White. Uh, both of them look like they're in line to possibly start, uh, and, and, but certainly make a roster for their NFL teams. Uh, Georgia's got that same situation in Kenny McIntosh and Kendall Milton, the first one a former four-star, the second one a former five-star. They recruited another five-star guy out of Mississippi this year, a freshman, um, who everybody's sort of creating. He's creating some buzz over the summer. So they're, they're well represented in the skilled positions on the offensive side of the ball, and I think they'll actually be better on offense than they were a year ago. Chip Towers with us. Chip, you know, we all are kind of wondering how much Dan Lanning, how much, you know, was part of what was happening on defense for Georgia. Do you have a sense of how influential he was? How much of that defense and the play calling on defense was Kirby Smart? Or how much was Dan Lanning? Yeah, you know, and that's good. That's actually one of the dynamics that I was asking uh, uh, Dan about today. Like, what's that going to look at? Uh, that look like between him and Tosh uh, on defense here at here at Oregon, and you know I think he's still trying to figure that out. But listen, uh, you know if anybody watched Georgia football at all the last couple of years knows that Kirby Smart is a whirling dervish on the sideline, and he's liable to jump into the huddle at any minute. And, and uh, you know I never saw him physically knock Dan Lanning over when he got into a huddle, but you know depending on the situation, uh, you know he was asserting himself with authority many times, and, and Dan and I laughed about that. And Dan was one of his great personality traits is just the ability to, 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 to handle that, you know, acquiesce to the head coach and you know, not take it personally. As soon as the head coach comes by, you know, boom, he's right back in there and, and, and carrying his message. So, But I, to, to answer your question, I think it's a lot of Dan Lane. I mean, I think this guy is a coaching savant, and I think uh, all you got to do – a great exercise, I think, for, for Oregon people who really want to dive in the weeds. Get on there and Google or go on to uh, YouTube, and there's a ton of stuff, these coaching clinics and stuff. Um, Dan never missed one of those. He never missed the opportunity to conduct one of those or to or to listen to one of those. And there is some brilliant uh, scheme video of him explaining what they do at Georgia and, and how they try to do it. Now, uh, in talking to him today, he said, you know, uh, actually, you, I actually use your reference. I, I think it was you said to me, I said, well, he, they're not going to have 11 first-rounders on the defense this year at Oregon, right? And, and he's saying, you know, but that's going back to his high school days. That's what he loves about coaching. It's doing what you can with what you have. And so last year at Georgia, 
you know, I would say they were, you, you know, they were a PhD in defense with what they were doing and, you know, different pressures and, and uh, you know, different coverages on different sides of the field and things like that. But he can simplify it, too, and, uh, you know, and, and just, you know, and, and, and cater it to wherever your strengths are. And what, what is going to be interesting to find out is how deep can the Ducks go on that side of the ball in particular because, uh, you know, there was a stat. I wish I could cite it right now, but I don't have it in front of me. Something about, um, you know, there were 30 defensive players. This was either last year or the year before last that played 100 or more snaps, I think, is, is, is what were meaningful snaps, uh, first half snaps or something like that. But that just gives you an idea of how deep he likes to keep guys involved. It keeps them engaged. And it also, uh, you know, sort of opens up his his briefcase, you know, for what they can do uh, to throw the offenses off. Chip Towers with us. You've been on that beat for 35. Is it 35 years? Well, off and on. I, you know, people, people like to say that about me, you know, because I, I went to Georgia, so – you know, my, my, the first game I ever covered was as a Cub reporter for the Red and Black, the student newspaper in 1985. Uh, you know, I've had different incarnations uh, on and off since then, but I did. The, my first job out of college was covering the Bulldogs for the Athens Banner Herald and Daily News uh, back in that day. And then I went to work for the AJC, and I did a lot of different incarnations, uh, including I was college editor for a time there which was you'd appreciate it as, a, as an ink-stained wretch like me. I mean, at that time, we were staffing every ACC and SEC football game every weekend for our Sunday, you know, our Sunday section. was It's, it's amazing when I think about it. I mean, I remember having to put a reporter on a puddle jumper to Starkville, Mississippi, you know, on a Saturday morning because we didn't have anybody to cover the Mississippi State-Auburn game to the last minute. And so we, you know, so we uh, – uh, we had to charter a, a, a puddle jumper to Starkville for our reporter, Jen Hildreth, now of television fame, uh, to get on the plane and go cover the game. So, yeah, that was – so I did that. But uh, it is – all roads lead to Georgia. People joke around here. I ended up back on Georgia uh, and, and have been for the last several years now. Herschel Walker, Vince Dooley, how much fun was that? Well, I, you know, I was actually after – Herschel Walker. I, I was uh, I was most of Vince Dooley. Vince Dooley is priceless. He's uh, you know still alive. He's not. He turns uh, interestingly. He turns ninety on the day after the Georgia Oregon game, September fourth. So it's going to be interesting to keep your eye out for. I'm sure they're going to do something to honor him in that game. He he's he, you know he's had a hip surgery, but I mean he's he's still uh, sharp as a tack in terms of his memories and everything. And he you know. Coached Georgia to a national championship in 1980. What people forget about that, Georgia not only won the national championship in 80, they won the SEC championship in 80, 81, 82, just missed it in 83, uh, lost out to Auburn, and played for the national championship at two other times during that span. So, uh, you know, and, and that was a lot of that had to do with uh, senatorial candidate Herschel Walker. Um, but he was, uh, you know, but it, it also had to do with Vince Dooley. And, um, you know, the, the, the one thing I'll tell you, the story I'll tell you real quick about Vince Dooley is I told you I was a Cub reporter and, uh, and covering Georgia and Vince Dooley is a, you know, a, a, a legend. 
And I wrote, so I learned very early on that if you're covering a beat, you don't want to be writing columns. I was given an opportunity to write the Monday column, and I decided I was going to do Monday morning quarterback, right? And so I questioned all this stuff that Vince Dooley did in a game that Georgia pulled out 42-35 to 35 on the road against Mississippi State in Starkville. I questioned his decisions at quarterback, at kicker. They, they were splitting. And so fast forward to, I think it was Tuesday, out after practice, and um, I had to ask a question about something. Somebody was there. They wasn't there. And he turns to me in his southern dialect, and, and I asked him his question. He says, well, I don't know, Mr. Towers. Why don't you tell me? Seems like you have all the answers. So that was my uh, that was that was my indoctrination to Vince Dooley. I killed the uh, Monday morning quarterback column after that, and uh, started concentrating on the uh, interworkings of the team as opposed to uh, sharing my opinion about them. All right, Chip. I I, I have uh, a staff member uh, on our staff who's a researcher uh, and former producer of the show. He lives in Eugene. He's got some recommendations for you if you just got a minute for this. Cadillac Chris Brown is joining us. Chris, you are in Eugene. Tell Chip Towers what he needs to see. Hi, JC. Uh, the first thing is don't go to track down. Uh, there's <laughs> much better food than that. Too late. Um, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, no, Too late. don't believe what – yeah, don't go to the places on billboards. You should know that traveling around the world is much easier. Um, Best drink in town is going to be at a place called Rye, and, and you should ask for a guy named Derek, and he'll set you up with uh, anything that will make you happy. The best single bite in town will probably take you back to your southern days with um, to fried chicken sandwich at a place called Party Bar downtown, Eugene. And Party Bar. For, yep. Yep, if you're looking for pizza, go to Hey Neighbor, and it will actually double as a spot for you to check out um, Hayward Field, because it's right by there. Oh, okay. Yeah. And if you're looking for breakfast Good. or brunch tomorrow, uh, do yourself a favor and go to Wine and Owl. Wine and Owl? Lion, like hear me Lion. roar. Uh, Lion like, and like, Owl. Lion and Owl. Yeah. Yep. Owl, like uh, I give a hoot. That was a Freudian. I was just looking for some wine. Okay, <laughs> Lion and Owl. Yeah. I got you. Yeah, and I... Right. I tell you if it was north or south or east or west, but apparently you're just going on left or right, so I can't tell you where that all is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know which direction I'm facing since I've been out here. I don't know why that is. Cadillac Chris <laughs> Brown. That's why I said I can't really help you. Cadillac Chris Brown, yeah, thank okay. you. Good stuff. Anytime. Bye, sir. There he is. See? We got you covered, Chip Towers. All right. I'm going to take was that was where he said Derek? Was asked for Derek. Was that Rye? Rye. R-Y-E. Rye. Oh, okay. I might can find some whiskey there. Okay, sounds good. Ask for Derek. Tell him Cadillac Chris Brown sent you in. He'll take care of you. Chip, <laughs> Chip, you're the best. I would love to get you back on maybe right before the game, but uh, I will see you in Atlanta. But enjoy your visit, and Eugene, and people want to read Chip Towers. Uh, read him on the Atlanta Journal-Constitution website. He's got a series coming. Uh, he already posted once. Uh, you'll you'll really enjoy it. they got a special right now. I know this because I signed up. It's 99 cents for the month. Uh, Chip Towers, I appreciate you. Thank you. There he is. It's good stuff. See? Is that hospitality or what? We got him covered. I want you to leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
I love that Cadillac Chris Brown not only gave him a place to get a drink, but told him the name of the bartender. That's how we roll around here. Chip Towers, good stuff. Atlanta Journal-Constitution quoted me in his piece. I wrote about him the other day. I didn't think about something the other day. And I was writing about Chip Towers, and I didn't think about the fact that that Georgia beat has got intense competition on it. There's about 24, 25 full-time media members who cover that beat all the time, 24-7, 365. Chip Towers at the front of the pack. But he was coming to Eugene. He told me he was coming to Eugene. And he told me he was going to meet with Dan Lanning. And he was going to do a series. And I wrote about it at johnconzano.com. And the very next day, I went, ooh, you know, I didn't think about his competition. Would they read it and then know he's here and then suddenly scramble somebody out to Eugene to – trying to compete with Chip Towers, or did it undermine his coverage at all? So I, I called him and I said, hey, I feel bad, I did this. And, he, you know, we talked about the differences on the Oregon and Oregon State beats versus the Georgia beat. Obviously, Georgia coming off a national championship, high interest, a bunch of media members, a bunch of small papers, radio stations, TV stations in the uh, area around the campus, in the extended area across the state of Georgia, and uh, a whole bunch of interest. Yeah, all the way down into the Florida Panhandle uh, for Georgia football. And Oregon and Oregon State, we've got interest here in the region, and there is some brand. And when Oregon matters on the national stage, when it makes a playoff or gets to the championship game as it has twice in 12 years, um, you know, the the reach obviously extends wider, but there's not as many, many media members that are on that beat and covering it. It's interesting to me to sort of track that. But good stuff from Chip Towers. Uh, we'll check in with him closer to that game. Coming up, we've got Punch It Audio, Damian Lillard, Kyle Shanahan, and much more. You'll hear from them and what it means. Plus, Anna will join us in hour number two. Happy hour coming up at 5 o'clock. I hope you're here for it. you got the bald-faced truth statewide on the BFT Radio Network. I appreciate that you're along for the ride. One hour in the books. You know where to get a drink in Eugene. And you know that if you stay here, you're going to get great radio in the next hour. I want you to leave it here. You got the BFT. BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. I was working outside over the weekend, felt good about myself, broke a sweat, dug around in the dirt a little bit, planted some things, moved some, uh, moved some raw materials around the yard. It was hot too. Steven, what'd you do this weekend? Uh, yeah, I actually did some yard work as well. I will say, I'm not a big yard work guy, like I don't like doing it, but... It feels good afterwards when my body is aching and I look outside and I see what I just did. So, yes. So, yeah. So, I did some yard work and I sat in the hot tub to try to recover my body a little bit. Kind of worked. Um, made some wings on Sunday. Had my brother over. So, uh, brother and his fiance. So, good good little weekend. Are you a cold tub guy? Because, like, you know, athletes use the cold tub for recovery. Yeah. So, when I was in college, the cold tub was kind of becoming a thing and I didn't really take care of my body very well but I do enjoy a cold tub as uh, when I played City League I used to take cold tubs at my house 
or just ice my feet after the games, and it would feel so good. So, yeah, if I was playing sports again, I would definitely be a cold tub guy. Bruce Barnum, the Portland State football coach, bought a few of those giant livestock feeding troughs, and he used them for his players when he took a uh, took his team to like a hot part of Oregon, Central Oregon, and he brought those tubs and filled them with ice and had the guys do their recovery in those things. Now he's got a bunch of them he's trying to sell, trying to sell me one. Uh, he's trying to sell everybody one of those tubs. But Anna's got a friend who's like a fitness buff, and her husband is a trainer, and he works with NBA athletes, and then the wife is a fitness and health buff as well. And and they got one of those big metal containers for their backyard, and they do that. Like they jump in that thing first thing in the morning. Apparently it's supposed to get you going supposed to help you with recovery. Anna says it would be good for me because when I work in the yard like that, I get inflammation. Like, I, you know, the joints in my hands, my knees, my back, they, they ache for about a day. But I like that aching feeling like you were saying. it. You know, it feels like my body's going, hey, you did something. You were active. That's good. Yeah, the endorphins, right? Like it gets, it gets you going a little bit. And I agree because yard work, I'm not good at yard work and I don't like it. But afterwards I looked at it and I'm like, you know what? I did a pretty good job. I deserve to sit in this hot tub and relax and try to get my body right. There you go. You deserve it. Uh, for me, like everything that I do, okay, so I write at johnconzano.com, and then it goes out. The minute I finish writing, it goes out via email to everybody who's subscribed. So if you're subscribed, you get it right away, and then I'll post it on a variety of social media sites. And then the radio show comes along later in the day, and uh, I do three hours of radio. And there's a podcast that exists afterwards, but a lot of times your words kind of disappear into the ether, right, as you're doing a radio show. and then I, you know, I do a podcast with uh, John Wilner now of the Bay Area News Group, and so we do that. Uh, we've been dabbling around with the podcast a little bit. We're getting ready to post a new episode, and and I do that. But you know, there's a podcast to show for it. But it's not like you can look at it. Everything I do, it there's nothing tangible about it. Like, and it's gone. And it's often the news cycle is like less than 24 hours now. It used to be a 24-hour news cycle. I feel like the news cycle now is about a five or six-hour thing. And then there's a new story, and everybody's moved on. And so I often am left at the end of my workday exhausted, sure, mentally exhausted. It's not a physically exhausting job, but I'm, I'm tired, and I feel like I've been working all day. But then I look back, and I go, what do I have to show for it? There's like a radio show. I, you know, It's not like building a fence. It's not like you know moving rocks around your yard. It's not like digging a ditch. It's a, like there's nothing to show for it. And so I think the – gratification that I get from yard work is in seeing like the tangible like I look back over my shoulder and there's a deck there mm -hmm. and I'm like oh I did that like I can see what I did and for some reason that connects to me it speaks to me right now yeah no we uh I had kind of put off the yard work for a little bit since I got this new job a different a different schedule the wife didn't really want to do it with the kids around so our bush got out of control and I started you know chopping it up and uh hedging it and so our gar our yard debris can got really full really fast, and the neighbor goes, "Well, you can use ours, you know." Uh, and I'm just thankful that you're finally cutting it. And it was a real back <laughs> it was a real backhanded compliment. Oh but, wow! But you know what? I was like, "Yeah, we need to use your garbage can, so uh, I'm not going to take offense to it." So you know, I you know they obvi the they obviously been talking about it behind her back. Yeah, for sure. Does that neighbor have like a impeccable yard? Uh I, I wouldn't say it's impeccable, but I'd say it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Mm. But you should stand in front of their house and just fold your arms and look. Just let them see you standing there, and you go, huh, yeah. hmm, you know? Give them a little bit of that business back. Sean, what would you do this weekend? 
Oh, it was honestly my the best weekend I've had in a really long time. Uh, I visited the food truck, uh, which was it was great. My friend made me these awesome ribs. Uh, what was the name of the food truck? Bomb and Ramen. <laughs> over in Forest you gotta Grove. give him some love, man. I showed him the clip yeah. from. Yeah. I showed my good friend the clip from the show on Friday, and he was so giddy uh, that I did that. You know, because most people have to pay uh, to you know to, to get on the air, right? You know, to promote their business, but. When you well, have you're just Sean, giving him some love. Exactly, you know. So uh, yeah, no, I, I did that on uh, on Saturday and worked the Timbers, and then got to hang out with some friends after the Timbers game, and then yesterday um, had some friends over at my apartment, and my apartment has a pool, so it was a really hot day yesterday. Um, so I had what is a, that? What's that scene like when you go to the apartment pool? Uh, you know, sounds like fun. It's it's a fun I mean, time. I, I like the pause that he did there. Yeah. Let's let's talk more about that. I mean, well, you know, I'm inviting like uh, there was probably seven other 23 year olds, 24 year olds. So you can imagine what our, you know, uh, it's a little bit. I, I don't know how much I want to. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, you know, he just, is jammed up yeah, right he now, is. Stephen. He is, he's looking nervous <laughs> in there. It's a mixed. It's a mixed environment. There's some kids in the pool. There's some you know, some parents. But then like I bring in my group of like 23, 24 year olds and. Maybe we get the speaker out, and you know, maybe we bring yeah. in our own uh, refreshments. And is stuff. there etiquette around a community apartment pool like that that you have to adhere to? Like, you know, and you know, you bring stuff to the pool. Do you have to share it, or your music? Can do you have to keep it at a you know low level, or what? What is there? What's the etiquette there? I don't think there's hard rules. Um, like there was kids around, and my friend was trying to get me to play some music, and you know, we're into like hip hop music, and I was mm-hmm. like, you know what? Like there's kids around like let's hold off on the speaker so i i kind of took a personal uh etiquette you know took a personal approach to my etiquette in the pool but there's no like there's no rule board or anything maybe there yeah. should be the unwritten rules it's of the a, pool it's a mixed crowd at the pool I, I, next time it was an we awesome need weekend. i think steven and i need some photos of what's going on at the pool <laughs> i'm very intrigued <laughs> i could just imagine like a parent scene shot and his group of friends coming like all right kids we got to go back home this is it we're playing uh, football we we're like playing 500 in the pool like tossing it up and you know we're like tackling each other in the pool so yeah it's it's a little bit rowdy but i think we were respectful to the uh the family crowd there as well i like it yeah i also played some tennis with my friend and uh over at washington park like up on the hills yeah um like the rose garden an awesome place to play tennis and there was no one else doing it so we had the court to our ourselves so it was a it was a fantastic weekend i grew up uh in a place that was a little warm in california and i like a day where you know, it pushes into the high 80s, low 90s. I don't mind that. And, you know, I was out working in the yard, and I even said, you know, somebody saw me doing the, you know, moving a bunch of rocks and stuff and said, I hope you're not doing that all day. And I was like, why not? Like, you know, what am I supposed to do? Wait till the sun goes down to do, you know, it's okay to break a sweat. Like, you know, it's okay to be out here. I'm kind of ready for the weather to change. I'm kind of sick of the heat. I wear the same clothes all the time. I'm ready to break out sweatshirts and pants and mm-hmm. I don't know. Personally, no. I'm kind of ready for the fall. Nope. Over I'm, the clinging, I'm clinging to the weather, man. Yeah. Let's let's keep it. Uh, let's play some Punch It Audio. We got good sound. Let's do it. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Oregon first-year head coach Dan Lanning talking about team connection and toughness. 
punch it. Obviously, at the end of the day, when you go on the field, there's going to be tough moments. And to me, the connection is going to be a part that gets you through those tough moments. You know, we talked about toughness after practice today. It's like everybody in the team meeting raised their hand and says, yeah, toughness is a good idea. Wait a minute, coach, are you, are you calling up me out for my – it's not such a good idea when I'm the guy getting called out, right? That's the way it's going to be sometimes. you got to hear that. So if it's what we're about, we have to put it right in front of us and talk about it each day. Look, I love the way he sounds. I love the enthusiasm. I'm excited to see Oregon play, but I'm also wondering, can Dan Lanning coach? And I think we're going to find that out. Maybe not in week one. But maybe, you know, week two, week three, by the time Oregon has played maybe three or four games, I think we're going to have a sense of whether or not Dan Lanning, as a young head coach, has got it together. I am a little worried about the lack of experience with his two coordinators and himself. I'm wondering who he's leaning on for advice. Is it Kirby Smart at Georgia? Is our guest in our number one sort of suggested that they're in touch and that there's a lot of similarities in how they prep, I don't know. But I'm excited to see what Dan Lanning does. And I wrote about it today at johnconzano.com if you want to read my column, but I wrote more or less that this is the question for Oregon. You know, can this guy coach? And then I had 11 other questions for the rest of the Pac-12. Speaking of the rest of the Pac-12, Desmond Howard talking about USC. Desmond Howard thinks USC is overrated. Listen punch it. Greg, I think that USC is overrated. I think the, the, the Trojans, the fight on Trojans are just riding the wave of hype from getting that guy right there. Obviously, Caleb Williams, he came over from Oklahoma with his coach, the new coach um, Lincoln Riley. And there's just a lot of hype. The expectations are don't forget though, this team was four and eight a year ago. Lincoln Riley tried to um, go into the transfer portal to try to fill a bunch of holes offensively and defensively. Now, the Belitnikoff Award winner, uh, Jordan Addison from Pitt, he decided to jo join Caleb Williams, and now he's at USC. So they're going to have some firepower on offense. But, guys, in week two, they have to travel to Stanford and take on David Shaw. And I tell you what, man, a road loss like that in conference can do a lot team's confidence. It can really shake them to their core. So that's going to be a big game in week two for USC against Stanford. Look, if it were seven on seven, I, I don't know that you anybody in America could beat USC. I, I really don't. They've got, the, they've got the skill position players. But I watched a year ago when Oregon State went to the Coliseum, and I was there. You saw it on TV, or you were there. You saw Oregon State pile drive USC. It happened week after week last year. It's why that was an eight-loss team. I think they're going to be better. But I think anybody who's predicting that USC is going to win 10 games isn't paying attention and isn't thinking about what they were on the offensive and defensive line a year ago. I think they'll be better. I think Caleb Williams is probably going to be a star. But I also think... He's a relatively inexperienced starter. He's got seven regular season starts under his belt. I think you need to see a little more before we hand them the trophy. So I'm with Desmond Howard. I think they are overrated and probably happy to be so. Pete Rose talking about his career and the scandals around him. He's not in the Hall of Fame. He bet on baseball. Here's Pete Rose. Punch it. I'm going to tell you one more time. I'm here for the Philly fans. I'm here for my teammates. 
Okay, I'm here for the Philly organization. And who cares what happened 50 years ago? You weren't even born. So you, you shouldn't be talking about it because you weren't born. And if you don't know a damn thing about it, don't talk about it. Pete Rose getting a little testy with media members. The Phillies invited him to be part of a celebration of their history. Pete Rose getting asked questions about Pete Rose. He says you can't talk about it if you weren't there, which uh, isn't a logical statement. But I get why Pete Rose doesn't want to talk about it. He wants to put it in the rearview mirror. I think there's two things here that we need to splinter. One is Pete Rose, the baseball player. He had more hits than anybody in the game. He should be in the Hall of Fame because of that. And then there's Pete Rose, the scumbag degenerate gambler who bet on games when he knew he shouldn't be betting on games. That guy, I'm okay with him not being allowed back around baseball, in stadiums, around teams. I'm okay saying Pete Rose the player, Hall of Famer. Pete Rose the human, eh, don't have a use for him. Finally, Damian Lillard talking about the culture of young kids in basketball. Punch it. Here we go. When I was in college, it was like you had to earn it. I was in the combine in my head thinking like I might be in the second round. I might not get picked. I literally believed that. And this kid's here today at this camp that's like, I guarantee you if you ask every kid on the bus, they think I'm going to the NBA. They don't have a, it's no question in their mind of whether or not it's going to happen because that's the culture that it is now. It's like they expect to be in the NBA. I've seen interviews from kids in high school where somebody's asking them like, you know, what team do you want to, you know, what team would you like to play for? And they like, I want to go to a good situation where the ball is in my hands. And it's, and it's like, I would have never said that as a kid. I would have been like, I want to win a national championship, you know? So like, it's just different. And this is this camp is about changing that that type of thought process. You know what I mean? Just, there's no humility. It's, it's a lot of fake humility where, you know, people know how to play the role, but they don't have, they don't have people around them that's like showing them how to be and how to, you know, handle stuff so that it's just natural. It's just what they think, you know, it's what they think and it's really how they feel. So they don't got to pretend. But enough about Kevin Durant, really. I mean, look, I think it's a good message. And I think, you know, we talk about late bloomers in sports and the benefit that late bloomers have. Like in some cases, you're an athletic late bloomer. You are maybe uh, a guy who plays in the front court, but you had to develop backcourt skills because as a young player, you were playing uh, you know, the guard position or the small forward position. And now suddenly you, you sprouted, but you have great ball handling skills because of it. But I think there's another facet to this. It's, it's you know, the guys that had to work hard to get to the league and stay in the league. When you come from Weber State, you gotta, you gotta grind a little bit. And I think that benefited Lillard. And I think he's right to talk about kids uh, and, you know, you have a generation and a culture of kids who basically feel entitled. You know, I was talking to a high school football coach yesterday who said, John, kids are soft. They're quitting. And they're having a hard time getting kids to come out for football. And then the kids who do come out are going double days. That's hard. It's hot out here. Toughen up. That's the message of the day. Anna's popping into the studio next. Leave it here. You got the BFD.
back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Former Oklahoma assistant football coach Cale Gundy resigned yesterday. There was a weird it was a weird Twitter announcement where he uh, announced his resignation. It kind of caught everybody, and you know, I saw it and I kind of looked sideways at it. I want to I want to read his his uh, explanation. Anna's popped into the studio, and then I want to give you the update on what we have now learned about the Kale Gundy situation. Basically, he issued yesterday on Twitter his resignation publicly, and he said he owed it to Sooner Nation to be transparent about what led to this decision. Last week, he wrote, during a film session, he's instructing players to take notes. He noticed a player was distracted. He picked up the player's iPad, and he read aloud the words that were written on the screen. He wrote in his explanation, quote, the words displayed had nothing to do with football. One particular word that I should never under any circumstance have uttered was displayed on the screen. In that moment, I did not even realize what I was reading, and as soon as I did, I was horrified. He wrote, I want to be very clear. The words read uh, that I read aloud from that screen were not my words. What I said was not malicious. It wasn't even intentional. Still, I'm mature enough to know that the word I said was shameful and hurtful no matter my intentions. The unfortunate reality is that someone in my position can cause harm without ever meaning to do so. And uh, he apologized, and he went on to say that uh, he is leaving the sidelines heavy-hearted. Anna, I saw this, and I went, there has to be more to the story. I had several coaches who reached out and uh, I texted with them and they said you know there's this is weird like why would you even announce this whatnot and as it turns out there is more to the story uh, I'm going to uh, defer here now to sound coming from uh, David Wilson of ESPN who has uh, covered this and written all about it and I'm gonna see if I can cue this up here's David Wilson talking about the situation Venables not long ago issued a second statement about the Gundy situation clarifying that he read a racially charged word aloud multiple times in a meeting so it wasn't a situation where he picked up the iPad and just read what was on there and wasn't really paying attention did say this word multiple times and, and Brent Venables in the statement saying coach Gundy did the right thing by resigning and as much as he's done for this program you know that incident does not reflect the values of what they want and the inclusive culture they want in their program so it certainly adds an element to this story because the initial reaction from former players of Cal Gundy's, Bob Stoops and others, you know, was more on the idea that, that he maybe just slipped up in, in reading this uh, language off of the iPad. But now, Brent Venable saying he read this multiple times, clearly maybe trying to make, make a point or, or what have you, and that ultimately led to his decision to, to resign, which Brent Venables accepted, saying Cal Gundy did a lot for this program, but that incident does not reflect who we are going forward. All right, here is the statement that... Uh... Venables issued. He said, quote, Coach Gundy resigned from the program because he knows what he did was wrong. 
he chose to read aloud to his players not once but multiple times a racially charged word that is objectionable to everyone and does not reflect the attitude and values of our university or our football program. This is not acceptable, period. Coach Dundee did the right thing in resigning. He knows our goal is for excellence and that coaches have special responsibilities uh, to set an example. Well, I mean, it's obvious that we have issues still to work through as a country, right? Because this all comes down to race. Uh, you know, he's white. The word that he referred to is derogatory. I'm assuming this is the N-word and nobody will say it, right? Yep. You know? Yep. Yeah. And so, like, that word should never be coming out of someone's mouth who is white, Right. Like, it's just, and so I'm conflicted because I'm also seeing a lot of support for the coach, and I, I understand it. I understand people who are like, really? You're going to erase decades of, you know, great coaching and leadership um, because of an incident like this? You know, I thought it was notable that a former Oklahoma player, Joe Mixon, who now plays for the Bengals, is coming out with, like, two-page statement, single space, talking about, you know, the coach's character and how this is simply not who he is. That's not who yeah. he knew as a coach. Yeah, but you are you are kind of what you do, you know, in the end. And what I'm, what I'm gathering here is that it looks like Gundy – okay, so he's in a meeting, and I'm trying to piece this together like everybody else. He's in a meeting. He sees the player's not paying attention. Mm -hmm. He's frustrated. Yeah. He's frustrated that the kid's not paying attention. Yeah. So kid's he, supposed to be taking notes. Taking notes. And so he meanders over and sees that he's doing something else on the iPad. Yes. Messaging, writing, I don't know. Yes. But he sees what he's writing, and then out of frustration and probably uh, anger at the kid, he begins to say it multiple times according to Venables aloud. And... That's wrong. You can't have that around your program. You well, can't have, you know, I don't care if you were good five years ago as a coach. <laughs> this is who you are. And I think there's a shame factor there, too, that he was trying to dis put on display, right? Because yeah. there's a couple different ways that you could handle that situation. First of all, you don't have to read the word out loud, right? Multiple times. Just take the, damn, take the iPad away and go, this isn't what it's for. Right. You know, <laughs> yes. you, you, if you can't handle it, you're not grown up enough to handle it, you take it away. But that's that would require, you know, a little bit of poise from the coach. Yeah. You know, the other coaches I talked to in football told me that this must have been a coach who wasn't on the same page as his head coach. Because if he were there would have been a little bit of rallying around like, hey, you know, you had a bad moment. Like, you, like they, they just had a head coaching switch. Mm -hmm. You know, Lincoln Riley leaves for USC. Yeah. So you've got Venables who's taking over the program. He doesn't have sort of the institutional support yeah. that maybe a coach who had been there 10 or 15 years had. And he's dealing with probably some position coaches that, you know, are leftovers and also recent hires. He's got to set a tone for his own staff. So there's a dynamic within the staff, too, that I think becomes important yeah. when it comes to this resignation. It's clear that Venables wanted him to resign and that Gundy, in that resignation, he basically was res like, resigning, but he's also saying, I didn't have malice. 
I, this isn't a word I use. I was repeating. He left out the fact that he repeated it several times. Yeah, so that was the information we had this morning, which led a lot of us, I think, to think differently about it. Yeah. Oh, he accidentally said it as he was reading this out loud, and it was once. And you're right. His statement kind of minimized what actually happened, uh, which is that he said it out loud multiple times. And what I immediately think of is recruiting. If you are at Oklahoma and, you know, you're always look with an eye toward recruiting, you do not want to be known as the team that has an assistant coach who is white, who is okay saying that word in any context. Yeah. I think it, That's I, the I think, problem. I think a lot of it comes down to recruiting. Like a big, yeah, big like piece. Ninety percent. Because <laughs> if, yeah, if you're Oklahoma, you want you know you win today if you're Venables by going public and going this is not acceptable. This isn't who we are. I don't care. You know he left out the fact that he said it multiple times. Stephen and Sean, you got thoughts on this? Yeah, no, I think uh, I think it's definitely the appropriate action to take uh, for Venables, uh, a brand new head coach who's still kind of you know trying to prove himself that he's the right person for this position to fire uh, this coach Gundy after uh, these actions. Like I think, like Anna said, there's no reason that someone should be saying that word um, around you know it's the youth like let's be honest these are students these are people in their low 20s so i i think it's and I, like what you said john earlier about you know the actions what whoever whatever coach he was to joe mixon five years ago like you are what you are right so these actions i think were not appropriate at all and i think it was the right move for a, a brand new head coach in venables who's still trying to prove himself to uh dismiss gundy and i think oklahoma will be better for it yeah there's certain things that are just inexcusable and you know, saying racist comments, like, that is one thing that is inexcusable to me. And, I mean, if it was one time, I could see where they make the argument of, oh, he was just reading, he didn't even catch what he was saying. But to say it multiple times, like, that's it's not Ron Burgundy situation where you just put it, read on the teleprompter, and he's going to read it, right? Like, that would be the that would be the one time he says, but he said it multiple times. So you can't even use that as an excuse. So I am all for the fire of that because that is – like Sean said, and you said, it's all about like the youth. You can't have that type of attitude, that type of nature in your program, and it's a good first move by Brent Venables. Should they have gone public with this? Because one of the coaches I texted with last night said, the weird part of it is, why issue a resignation statement? Why make a big deal about this? Why not just deal with it? let the coach go and say he's left the program and leave it at that. Oh, because it would like, come out anyway. It would come out anyway. The way these days, the way things happen these days, there's no way. There was an entire room of football players in there. There's no way that secret staying in that room. And, yeah, he didn't even need to be fired. He resigned in this case. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. by, by announcing it and having him resign, the university actually is better off for it. It's interesting, too, because it is the brother, Cale Gundy, of Oklahoma State football coach Mike Gundy, who came under fire a couple of years, couple seasons ago for wearing the paraphernalia that was uh, pro-right-wing TV station to practice, and he had several African-American players who came out and said, you know, we don't feel like you support us. Hmm. This is his brother. And so I think it's really interesting to sort of see – that this is the this is a Gundy family situation now with you know one coach and another and I I remember when Mike Gundy had to come out in the wake of that do you guys remember that Sean and uh, Steven do you I remember when Mike remember Gundy that. had to come out yeah I do remember that it was it was a deal because 
it was he was acting like you know he's not allowed to have freedom of speech and all that kind of stuff yep. to go along with it. But uh, to go back to Anna's point about the players would have like someone would have told him like the next quarterback that goes into the transfer portal would have leaked it to somebody. Like you know what Coach Gundy said, and then that would have been brought out. Yeah, so, I mean I don't I don't even think. Do you think it would have even taken that long? It, it would have been like yeah. a matter of hours or days, not even weeks before yeah. that came out. You're right. Yeah, just yeah. like. The, that's the worst case scenario would be yeah. is you know players would leak that out because they'd be mad or whatever like you know so yeah it's they had to put it out there and for him like it's tough that he's probably he may not get another job because of it but you also can't be racist and get get high paying jobs in my mind all right so here's Mike Gundy he wore a OAN America One America News Network shirt. Yeah. Oh, I, uh, I remember and that now. Here, here yeah. he is talking to ESPN. The way the players feel about me, and I upset them and broke their heart, that bothered me more than losing games, and that's the truth. But that's why now, that as humans, when we make mistakes, the only thing we can do is admit we're wrong, own up to it, be humble, accept critical people criticism, make it better and move forward. Make it better and move forward. Remember, he, he, did a, he did an apology video, and he was apologizing specifically to one of his running backs who, who was really upset by this. In light of today's tweet with the uh, T-shirt I was wearing, um, I, uh, I met with uh, some players and uh, realized it's a very sensitive issue with what's going on uh, in today's society. And so we had a great meeting and uh, made aware of some things that uh, – players feel like that can make our organization or our culture even better than it is here at Oklahoma State. And I'm looking forward to making some changes and it starts at the top with me and we got good days ahead. I'll start off by first saying that I went about, I went about it the wrong way by tweeting. I'm not someone that, you know, has to you know, tweet something to make change. I should have went to him as a man and I'm, all, I'm more about action. So that was bad on my part. But from now on, we're gonna focus on bringing change and that's the most important thing. All right. Then they uh, slapped backs and they hugged. And then Mike Gundy had to do a second apology video, if, if you guys remember this. I had a great meeting with our team today. Our players expressed their feelings as individuals and as team members. They helped me see through their eyes how the T-shirt affected their hearts. Once I learned how that network felt about Black Lives Matter, I was disgusted and knew it was completely unacceptable to me. I want to apologize to all members of our team, former players and their families for the pain and discomfort that has been caused over the last two days. Black Lives Matter to me, our players matter to me. These meetings with our team have been eye-opening and will result in positive changes for Oklahoma State football. I sincerely hope the Oklahoma State family near and far will accept my humble apology as we move forward. He was kind of a dumbass for wearing that shirt. Well, I, this is so complicated really because look, as Americans, we support free speech, right? That's like, one, as journalists, it's one of the rights that we hold dearest. Uh, however, if you're in a position where you are a coach and you're trying to recruit predominantly black players uh, and you're supporting a network, which, by the way, is on its way out, 
um, that really, you know, goes against Black Lives Matter and uh, has a lot of these like conservative values that go in directly opposite of some of the social issues that these young players have taken up causes for, like they believe in these, then you kind of have to read the room, right? And then the secondary issue with all of this, like to go back to his brother, the current Gundy that we're discussing, is if you are reading out a message on somebody's iPad mm -hmm. and you come across the N-word yeah. and you just are that comfortable saying it multiple right. times, isn't there an issue there? Because like, th that's where I kind of have real problems with that because it's like if it so easily comes out of your mouth, then when is it coming out of your mouth in settings where black people are not present, right? Yeah, because the way it was portrayed originally was like he was reading, you know, uh, a, a page out of the Winnie the Pooh book. And he, <laughs> he read the words and then he went, oh, that, I shouldn't have read that. Uh, but the way that Venables, you know, basically affirmed in the statement today is that he sing, you know, he focused on that word and said it multiple times. Yeah. He was frustrated that the guy was, you know, on his iPad, but he acted, you know, like a racist idiot by, by, you know, that's what he, that's how he comes off, like it or not. The question hey, I, hey, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go uh, ahead. The, the question I have is with Mike Gundy because the assistant coach gets, you know, has to resign, was going to get fired, whatever. But Mike Gundy wears this shirt that obviously has racist intent mm -hmm. to it, but in the last eleven years, he averages nine and a half wins in Stillwater, mm -hmm. Oklahoma. If he's yes. an assistant coach, does he get have to resign before wearing that shirt, or yeah. does he get fired? I think if he's successful, he gets to keep his job. That's what I was trying to say. I was a little ham-handed with it in the beginning, but I think the coaching change from Lincoln Riley to, to Venables is interesting here because Venables does not have the job security that Lincoln Riley had, and his, you know, and we all have seen this when a head when somebody is promoted and takes over as head coach. Often you find there are people on the staff that are holdovers, as Gundy is, from other staffs. He may have wanted the job himself. They may have been at odds anyway. And I think I think that is absolutely at play here because I think if Venables had, is coming off a national championship and Cale Gundy is a big part of that, he might get suspended. He might – maybe we don't even hear about this. But I, I just think there, there's some part of this – that relates to the idea that Oklahoma is trying to start over with a new coach here, and that new coach does not want this to be part of the equation. Well, Understandably, yeah. When there's off-the-field issues that just totally distract the actual football, like we've seen it in the Pac-12 a couple times recently, right, with Nick Rolovich last year, with Jimmy Lake last year, um, even Willie Taggart when he first started at Oregon, there was that weight room issue. Yeah. Those usually, like, kill a football team. Like, the, it's just all the distraction. And so I'm, I'm fascinated that Mike Gundy, he's one of the longest-tenured head coaches in all of college football. He survived that, and it's a situation that I completely forgot about. And that's why I think, you know, he resigned. But I have to think that the other Gundy was kind of pressured out and that um, the new head coach uh, for Oklahoma, like he wants to get in front of that because, again, it can completely kill a football team when you have this off the field issue that that over, you know, kind of supersedes the actual football. I want to take some phone calls. 503-417-7575. Weigh in on this. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. On phone calls, we're talking about Kale Gundy, who 
apparently repeatedly said an offensive word. I uh, am gathering and most are gathering that it was the N-word that he said that he read off a player's iPad. And his head coach, Max Venables, coming out saying, look, he should have resigned. He did resign. It was the right thing. This isn't what we stand for. I want to take some phone calls. 503-417-7575 is the number. Will's on I-5. Will, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Hey, uh, I just had a couple of points. Uh, the first is uh, something that Anna brought up. Um, absolutely, everybody's entire, entitled to free speech, but also, too, you have to face the repercussions of your free speech, whatever that is, whatever that may be. And obviously the repercussions for this were just and, and right. And the second point I wanted to bring up is I was on a couple of uh, just general college football blogs today, and I'm really tired of guys my age, I'm a 50-year-old white guy, saying, well, they use it in rap songs, they call each other that. Well, yeah, they do it for shock value. It's not. It doesn't mean that you can say that just because a group of people use a term to describe the people in their group doesn't yeah. allow you to do that. And right. I, I wanted to bring that up. I'm, You're right. I'm it's really tired of that argument. I'm yeah, really it, sick and tired of it, that. It's a good point, but also I think it's it's deeper than that. It is about you know taking the power out of the word. I mean, none of us really um, understand the historical pain of that word more than people who are of that race. And so when people say things like, oh, sticks and stones, you know, it's just words, it's really so much deeper than that. Like, you see, you know, the black community using that word in part, if you have read about it at all, because they're actually trying to strip away the negative power that comes with that so that if they can use it and normalize it in some sense and change the meaning of it from what it has been in our country's history then then that's why that's that's the reason behind that and it's not for the rest of us to sit here and comment on them and criticize the black community for using that word yeah, and I think too. I like I'm get, we're getting a better sense of what happened in the meeting. You know, if you read his statement, then you read Venable's statement, you kind of gather he was, you know, he was frustrated and the kid wasn't paying attention and he went after him and he went after him in a way that ends up being racial. It's racist. You know, if you're repeating that word multiple times in order to kind of shame the kid uh for for not paying attention, uh, in the end, that's where it goes. It's just really interesting, too, because the two Gundys had different approaches. Anna, during the commercial break, we were talking about the way Mike Gundy kind of, you know, he, he switched the conversation. He about-faced. Yeah, and he did that, and it helped him save his job. I had, a, I had a black studies teacher years ago when I was in college who told me, you know, I went to his office for office hours, and we were talking about something that he was lecturing about, and he was he had lectured about walking down the street, even on the college campus, and he would see people lock their doors as they see him approaching, and they're sitting in a car. Mm -hmm. They'd see him walking up, and they locked. He heard the door click. Yeah. And he said, that form of racism. He said, I can deal with it because I see it. I know that person saw a black person walking up and went, ooh, I better lock the door. Yeah. He said, the one that scares me is the one I can't see. Yeah. I mean, the code switching is, I would argue, even more 
dangerous and disastrous for our country, for people who have racism in their hearts but are hiding it. And I completely agree. Like if you are just racist and that's who you are and you're just going to show your cards, that person I can I can deal with and actually try to maybe even have a conversation with. It's the person who is pretending and switching up who they are in different circumstances. That's the kind of damage that our country is not going to, you know, that's not going to allow our country to make progress do you think, on that front. Do you think Mike Gundy was code switching when he went from, hey, I didn't know the shirt, didn't know the values it represented? Like, like if you're putting on a shirt it, that has the name of a network on it, you you want to pretend after that you didn't know that, like, their values and what's on air with the network? Like, I don't wear anything that I don't know about. Maybe I'm Pollyanna, but I just would hope that the conversations that he had with his players that he described where they just told him, you know, the level of hurt that they had experienced and why his support of that network bothered them so much. I hope those were real conversations and that he took it to the heart. You know, I just I don't think that anybody is beyond improvement and growth and evolving in their lifetime. I didn't know that, that some of the stances they had taken. I didn't know that. But then you look at it and say, okay, I was a dumbass. I put the shirt on not knowing enough about the shirt. I understood exactly why the players got frustrated when they found that out or whatever, however they found out what it was. I didn't know. I didn't know till the next day. Well, I knew that night, but I, I didn't confirm it till I did a little research. And I was like, what a dumbass. Um, so that was my fault. I don't know. I, I think when you – I don't know. When I, heard, when I heard about this last night, I thought about Mike Gundy, even though it's his brother, Cale, who did yeah. it. I thought about it because they grew up in the same household. They, you know, I, I don't know what kind of values were shared in that household, but it raises concerns for me on both fronts. I want you to leave it here. You got the bald face truth. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I posted a burning question for every Pac-12 football program today at johnconzano.com, but Part of my post, and if you subscribe, you received this uh, bright and early this morning, but part of my post, I, I wrote about a jilted neighbor. Not my jilted neighbor, Mario Cristobal's jilted neighbor. Mario Cristobal left Oregon for Miami. We all know that. And the wake of that, I got a bunch of email correspondence, understandably so, and, but one note stru stuck out to me. It was from one of Mario Cristobal's neighbors. It was a father whose family lived a couple of blocks from the Cristobals, and he wrote to tell me that his children attended the same schools as Rocco and Mario Mateo, the two uh, sons of Mario Cristobal and Jessica Cristobal. And the reader's children apparently were mourning the loss of those friendships for a second time. They'd also grown fond of one of Willie Taggart's kids. And the dad wrote me, no more friendships with coaches' kids. It's part of why I didn't want to like Dan Lanning. The Oregon coach. Stay with me here. I I kind of feel like we've gone from Chip Kelly to Mark Helfrich to Willie Taggart to Mario Cristobal to Dan Lanning at Oregon. We've gone from Mike Riley to Gary Anderson to Jonathan Smith at Oregon State. 
If you include Mike Bellotti in there, that's nine head coaches in 14 years between the state's two major college football programs. I kind of feel like we've been jerked around a little bit. So I didn't want to like Dan Lanning. But the more I listen to Dan Lanning, the more I like him. And Jonathan Smith, he's charming too. He's got a good little story. He's the, you know, he was the quarterback of the team. He's back in his, you know, his alma mater. And so I kind of feel like even though I didn't want to get any kind of, you know, I don't want to say attachment to these guys, but I didn't want to grow fond of them and then have them leave like everybody else leaves. I kind of feel like we're stuck with these guys. I feel like they're going to stick around a little bit. I'm afraid that I'm afraid to even hear you say that. It's like I want to knock on wood. I know. Wood. Knock on wood. <laughs> Next thing you know, they're out. They're going to win, and they're out. We'll talk more about it on the other side of the break. Plus, the five at five coming up. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Look, I'm just saying, I get it. Kids make friendships in elementary school. Nobody thought about all those kids that were friends with Willie Taggart's children and then Mario Cristobal's children, and in some cases, they were the same kids. Hey, Mom, Dad, I got a new friend. Dad happens to be a football coach at Oregon. Set yourself up for heartbreak, kid. It happened. But I think as fans, like, look, Oregon, Oregon's program wants to compete at the highest levels of college football. That's what it aims to do. And if you're going to do that, you're going to encounter, in some cases, coaches who aren't forever coaches. Because here's the, here's the thing. Even though you, as a Duck fan, may view Oregon's program as a destination, like that head coaching job being the greatest job in all of America, the truth is the rest of America does not view it that way. They see Oregon as a top 20 job, top 25 job. You know, there may be about six or eight SEC jobs that coaches would jump out way before they'd get to the Oregon job. There may be about six jobs in the Big Ten now that coaches would jump at. Then there's also geography. Where did the coach grow up? Where's home? Mario Cristobal went home. Uh, you know, Willie Taggart went home. I think there are some Oregon fans that are okay with that being part of the calculus. Hey, we're going to try to compete at the highest levels, but we're going to lose guys. Meanwhile, at Oregon State, I think it's a different equation. You had Mike Riley, who I thought was a forever guy, in Corvallis, and he had a contract that was set up that I didn't think kept him sharp. The contract he had, every time he won six games, he got another year on the deal. And so Mike Riley was just incentivized to get to six wins, and that's it. And he often did, six, seven, eight. And he had some years where he won eight, nine, ten. And those were great years. But the last few years of Mike Riley, there were questions about kind of the trajectory of the program. It had kind of plateaued. And I think he felt unappreciated. And I think that's why the Nebraska job was interesting to him. I also think it was a little bit of a shakeup for him career-wise. But uh, Oregon State has, after the Gary Anderson experiment, course-corrected and gone back to kind of the coaches that would view – Corvallis as 
the forever job. Remember, Mike Riley grew up painting Reeser Stadium. That's a job he had in the summer. He got out there with a roller and a can of paint. He was painting the stadium. Now they got Jonathan Smith, who grew up visiting his grandmother, who lived in Corvallis, and then went to college there and won some games. Walk-on turned head coach, Jonathan Smith. There, are, there might be some jobs that would be attractive to him. Like if, you know, if USC offered him a job someday, he'd probably jump at it. That's the team he grew up watching, grew up in Southern California. But I think Jonathan Smith is not leaving Corvallis to go to Miami or Texas or some, you know. He's only leaving that job for a no-brainer opportunity. And if that, maybe ne- never at all. I think it's worth thinking about. And I wrote about it today. And, I, you know, I, it's something that's on my mind. Because if Dan Lanning does win, there's a fair chance that he's out the door. Anna, do you agree with that? I think you disagree with that because you, you look at his kids. You see it from the family a- angle. I do. Um, maybe it's the mom in me, but it's, uh, like, uh, to me, the Lannings probably want to establish some roots just because their kids are getting to the age where moving them again is going to be tough on them socially. Like his oldest one is, I think, what, middle school? 12, age? 10, and 8. Yeah. Three boys. So, and I, I know everybody does things differently for their families, but I just kind of think of it from that perspective. Obviously, they love their kids, and there, there has to be a point, don't you think, where the conversation as a family is like, okay, when are we going to get going to give the kids a chance to set up and establish some roots and not take them away from a community that they're building in Eugene? I don't want to feed into people feeling jilted, but I want to say this. Lanning's family is his his parents live in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. So that's where home is to him. Yeah, they've been all over. Yeah. Right. They've been in Memphis. They've been. At Georgia, they've been at a bunch of other colleges. He's been bouncing around, Arizona State, whatnot. I do think you're, you're probably right in that they have found, like, a place where this could, he could stay a while. I also don't necessarily know if the SEC, because it's not in Kansas City, would hold the draw that it would hold for somebody who's, who grew up in the South. I, I also think his wife's bout with bone cancer – is interesting in this. He he came on this show and he kind of talked about how that changed his life perspective a little bit. Yeah. That, you know, football's a job. Yeah. It's not your family. Mm-hmm. And I thought, gosh, is he just saying that? Because that's awfully refreshing. I like to hear that. <laughs> because, you know, if you're at Oregon and you can make $5 million a year or you can go to the SEC and make $7 million a year, you know, if you are just basing that on the economics, you are leaving. But if you're basing it on, hey, $5 million is enough to live comfortably for life, and (laughs) my kids are going to be able to go to elementary school and make some friends and have a normal childhood as best they can. Uh, And, you know, I keep looking at, like, kind of Sophia and the boys and thinking, you know, they've moved around. They've made some sacrifices in the last decade. Well, and, you know, not all families are the same, right? Obviously, she you know, created this family with somebody who had aspirations of being a head coach at a major college program. So 
couples have all kinds of conversations and family dynamics are different to the family. So some families are more are more okay with the idea of being nomadic and just going to where the opportunity is. Um, but I, I think that kind of family is kind of few and far between. You have to be kind of an unusual family to accept that idea that every three to four to five years we're going to uproot and change places especially as your kids get older so I'm not saying it's not completely out of the realm of possibility but I think that most people at least are having that conversation like hey can we settle in here and Dan can you just try to build your legacy here in Oregon and let us you know make some real connections people looked at Mario Cristobal and thought and Willie Taggart too and felt betrayed because Willie Taggart was not a candidate for other Power Five conference jobs. He was, you know, coming from a, you know, University of South Florida when Oregon gave him the opportunity. And then after one year, he leaves to go to the Florida State job. It's going home. It's a windfall. I get all that, but people looked at kind of the shady way that he took the team playing. He was on a recruiting trip. He got a, went and auditioned for the job while he was supposed to be recruiting. And then with Mario Cristobal, Let's be real. It was, uh, you know, I'm not going to Miami. My mom's sick. I'm going down to visit her. Next thing you know, he's taking the job there. Like a lot of eye rolling going on in that period. <laughs> I think Dan Lanning, there is kind of a feeling that he, Oregon gave him this opportunity when nobody else was giving him this opportunity. Here we go again because Mario Cristobal is the same way. Nobody was hiring Mario Cristobal. Oregon gave him the shot. He was not getting – he doesn't get to Miami without Oregon. So what did he owe Oregon? What does Dan Lanning owe Oregon? Um, I, don't, I don't know that he owes them anything, really. I mean, it's a free market enterprise. <laughs> so I think he, he does. Go. I think he does. Uh, I think we just have to treat the landings a little bit like they're, they're potentially going to enter the transfer portal like any times. other player. So what do the coaches do right now to try and retain their players? and keep them out of the transfer portal. What do they do? Well, they say, the market behaviors of head coaches? One of two things. Herm <laughs> Edwards said on Media Day, i got to recruit my own guys. Yeah. I'm recruiting them all the time. Uh, I, I asked Mario Cristobal that very question about the portal, and he said, nope, I recruit the right guys. They're not going to be interested in getting into the portal. Did Oregon hire a guy who would be interested in getting into a portal? I don't think Dan Lanning would, but I've been wrong before. <laughs> Let's play the five at five. It's the five big stories, and it's kind of near five o'clock. The five at five. Well, the preseason poll is out. Alabama is on top of the coaches' poll, followed by Ohio State. Number one in the USA Today coaches' poll released today. Defending national champion Georgia is third. The AP Top 25 comes out August 15th. By the way, rounding out, the top five is Clemson at number four, Notre Dame at number five. Michigan is sixth, by the way. Texas A&M seven. Utah's eighth. How about the Pac-12 checking in in the top ten? Anna, go. I don't know why this caught my eye, but Kevin Durant drawing a line in the sand. Met with Nets owner Joe Tsai over in uh, London over the weekend. Says he's put down an ultimatum saying that he no longer has faith in the team's direction and that he needs for Steve Nash and GM Sean Marks to get the boot 
And that's the only way that he will stay in New York. Is that interesting to anybody else? Yeah, we started the show by talking about that today. And it was interesting that I feel like Kevin Durant needs somebody in his circle to tell him, dude, you're way out of line. You just signed a $198 million extension. You're not even in year one of that deal, and you're already demanding things. Check yourself, man. This is going to be your legacy. And we got a little breaking news. Joe Sy has tweeted. He has tweeted, our front office and coaching staff have my support. We will make decisions in the best interest of the Brooklyn Nets. Take that. Take that. (laughs) By the way, they're in London. Yeah. Anna. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I keep thinking about the London Olympics in 2012. And when we got on the uh, the train and the the kids from Amsterdam or the Netherlands yeah. were on the train and they were all going, fish and chips, fish and chips, fish and chips. <laughs> over and over, they chanted that in the whole train ride. <laughs> when you said London, I went, fish that's, and chips. That's what comes to your mind? That's it. That's the prompt? That's the prompt. So, good good move by the owner of the Nets. Huh. Laying down the law. Number three in our five at five. We were talking about this a little bit, but I think it's worth revisiting. Oklahoma assistant football coach Cale Gundy, brother of Mike Gundy, apparently read racially charged words aloud multiple times, according to head coach Brent Venables. Gundy resigned on Sunday saying he inadvertently read a word that I should have never under any circumstance uttered off the screen of a player's iPad during a film session. Gundy's 50. He was the longest serving assistant coach in the Big 12 ahead of his brother Mike who is the coach at Oklahoma State. Anna, number four. What's the craziest thing you've ever done to try and get an autograph? How about throw a brand new football that's still in the box at a quarterback? Don't do that. Buffalo Bills quarterback Josh Allen got pretty upset at a fan who chucked this football at him, hit him in the groin as he was jogging into the locker room after practice on Sunday. These are people that want him to sign an autograph. Why would you do that? I just don't understand. They, they're thinking if he catches it, he's got to sign it. He should just toss it back. He didn't. He just left it on the ground and rebuked the fan. Come on now. Still in the box, even. Throw your football at a quarterback. Yeah. And that's clearly somebody who's going to repurpose the ball. Yeah. Put it on eBay or whatnot. Yeah. I don't know why they would sign anything. You're not going to earn any favors with him doing that. Come yeah. on. Finally, our fifth thing in our five at five. Let's talk about the Padres for just a second. You got Fernando Tatis Jr., who is con- who is continuing a rehab assignment uh, in the minor leagues. He's in San Antonio getting rehabbed. But uh, essentially, you got the Padres going for it right now. You watch their moves to- at the trade deadline. You watch how they are assembling young talent and mortgaging their future. And yet the Padres get swept in their first postseason trade deadline series against the Dodgers. Juan Soto in a Padres uniform. Josh Bell at first base. Padres going for it. It'll be interesting as the Padres got an A-plus grade at the trade deadline. Some teams didn't do so well. 
But, you know, the Yankees did well. Padres did well. Orioles probably did okay. You look around the rest of baseball, nobody did it as well as the Padres at the trade deadline. They're going all in. They just didn't get the short-term result. That's the five at five. What, Anna? You look perplexed. You look like you're thinking. I know. Are... I'm just reading about the Padres now. now. So I mentioned the Padres. You start reading about yeah, yeah. immediately. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There you go. It's like a college student cramming for a test. Hey, by the way, you were in the garage making a racket earlier. Uh-huh. What was going oh, on? No, what was going on in there? You, I was what sanding. Are you doing? Sanding was what? A cutting board. Sanding and re-oiling a cutting board. It was refurbishing a cutting board. I, I wasn't going to say anything, but I thought I heard something crashing during the break. <laughs> was she, I that noisy? She was. I didn't know. Well, there was something. It it wasn't. It wasn't like that bad, but yeah. I was well aware that there was some machinery going on, and I was oh. like, "What is going on?" Sorry, there? I had my headphones in. Yeah, I was uh, rocking out and sanding. <laughs> is that was that very like? Give me an idea on the cutting board. I have no idea what you were doing. So this there was a butcher block cutting it's board. It's a butcher block cutting board, and uh, it's stained and kind of gnarly looking. You can see the cuts yeah. in it, and I figured that I could make it better. And so I got the sander out and two different types of sandpaper and some mineral oil later. It looks like brand new. It does? Yeah. Is this a thing? Could this could be your side hustle doing butcher you know, blocks? It was oddly cathartic. I, I didn't want to stop sanding. It was just really like peaceful and I if get it. If you don't stop sanding, you're just left with sawdust in the I end. know. It was amazing how much was gathered in the little uh, yeah. receptacle. It, yeah. it, very interesting. Good yeah. on you. A lot of range there that you're demonstrating. <laughs> you know, Miss American Teen 1993, now standing in the garage. I was channeling like the HGTV Joanna Gaines yeah. type people. I'm like, oh, maybe I could do one of those home. Did, did you guys know things. that, Stephen, Sean? Did you know Anna's Miss American Teen 1993? I, I had no idea. That's uh, congratulations. That's yeah. incredible. Beauty pageant really over here. Incredible. It's I tell you what. Uh, yeah, Miss Oregon. Talk to Miss Oregon at the um, John Cons- at the BFT uh, Foundation Golf Tournament, and she yes. was yes. she was incredible. Was that what you were like? Did you ever, Anna? Did you get to talk to Miss Oregon? It, could you relate to her? Uh, no, she's on like a whole nother level. Although she does wear the tiara around the house, guys, in her she's sash nice. from 1993. While only, she's sanding, only only by request. <laughs> So Gross. there's that. In 19, I'm trying to think where I was in 1993. You were Miss American <laughs> Teen. Yeah. And in 1993, yeah. I was in a bar in college. <laughs> <laughs> that's, well, that's kind of gross. I guess it's good you weren't hitting on me because that would be illegal. Yeah. Like, how old were you when you won Miss American I think Teen? I was 14 or something. Okay. 15? Let's 15? just end this discussion. 15? This is not good. Going well for me. <laughs> so, you had to be older than that. No, it was like 15. Okay. Yeah. Good job on winning that thing. Can you take the Thanks. sash off now? Seriously, it's right by her. <laughs> it's hanging on yeah. the wall. All right. Leave it here. You got the bald face truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Sports Business Journal reporting that the Big Ten talks are in the home stretch. Barring a last-minute change of direction, according to that publication, uh, ESPN, 
will not have any of the conference's football and basketball games for the first time in 40 years. Uh, they're talking about agreements being reached by the end of this week or maybe pushing into next week. CBS and NBC have emerged as frontrunners to pick up the Big Ten rights alongside Fox. There's only so much money to be spent in the market. Now, this is an interesting development on two fronts. Over the weekend, I wrote about Notre Dame. I do expect Notre Dame wants to stay independent and probably will stay independent. But a lot of that is going to come down to NBC and what NBC wants to do and how much they want us pay. And I wrote about this uh, over the weekend. I wrote about it yesterday. But Notre Dame's price is really interesting. See, Fox's deal with the Big Ten is expected to result in distributions to the Big Ten in the 75 to $80 million range. Notre Dame uh, would like to stay independent, but the Big Ten would like them not to be independent. But Notre Dame currently has a deal with NBC that will pay it $22 million this year and $24.75 million next year. So uh, Notre Dame also gets about $12 million a year in distributions from the ACC, where it is a member in all sports except football and ice hockey. So the, the take for Notre Dame in the final year of their deal with NBC will be about $36.75 million. The Big Ten would love to have Notre Dame in its Golden Dome brand, but as long as the Irish have access to the football playoff and uh, have access to an ample pile of money, I just don't see that happening. I think Notre Dame doesn't need the conference affiliation, as long as they can get access to the playoff and as long as they can get money. But what does Notre Dame need in annual distributions to justify being independent in today's world of college football? And why does that dovetail with what the Sports Business Journal is reporting? Well, I'm here to tell you. The Big Ten may want Notre Dame, but as long as Notre Dame can get, say, $65 million or so from NBC, $65 million a year, Notre Dame has no need to bounce over to the Big Ten because that 65 plus what they would receive in distributions from the ACC would put them at about $78 million for the year 2026. That's the bar. That's the bar, okay? But think about this. When I read that report from the Sports Business Journal that said ESPN would not get college football, what stuck out at me were the other bidders for the Big Ten's rights. It's CBS and NBC. And so I wonder if the Big Ten Conference is trying to play a little bit in, N in Notre Dame's space to eat up some of the money that NBC potentially could offer Notre Dame. Basically, if you're the Big Ten, you go, hey, Notre Dame, why, uh, you know, while you're trying to negotiate with NBC in a couple years, we're negotiating with them now, and we're going to take a big bite out of that pie. I'm just speculating here, but I wonder – and I don't put anything past the Big Ten. I kind of wonder if what they're trying to do here is not only get as much money as they possibly can, but also get some of that money that potentially would have found its way to Notre Dame. Because NBC right now has Notre Dame. That's it. If NBC buys some of the inventory in the Big Ten, will they have as much money to spend with Notre Dame? That's a question I'll be asking some of the experts inside sports media. But I think it's really interesting, too, to think about the playoff and how that factors in all of this. 
the the payouts by by the college football playoff are going to skyrocket in the next deal. When they expand the playoff, those payouts are going to be somewhere along the lines of like forty million dollars per participant. Okay, so if you're in the Pac-12, and let's just say you stay at ten members, and let's just say that you get an average of, you know, one point five teams in every year, your payout annually is, you know, going to be like forty to sixty million dollars in an average year. But you have to split that ten ways. So everybody, if you split it equally, is only getting four, five, six million dollars a year in distributions. If Notre Dame makes it every other year to the twelve team playoff, and that's not inconceivable. And in fact the analysts at Navigate, a uh, Chicago-based data and analytics firm, have sort of crunched the numbers on this, and they think Notre Dame is good to make the playoff almost every other year, just .4 times a year is what they're saying. So every, just about every other year Notre Dame would get in. The payout for Notre Dame would then be uh, you know, about $22 million a year average if they're making every other year. That's far greater than they would garner if they were a part of another conference. It's really interesting to me to kind of look at Notre Dame as an independent. I like Notre Dame as an independent because it, it, I think it's healthy for the ecosystem of college football to not have everybody lined up in the Big Ten. I think it was terrible for the ecosystem for USC and UCLA to jump into the Big Ten. Terrible. Like, total imbalance. I feel like we're messing with the algae in the ocean here. Like, you know, oh, we're getting rid of the algae so the swimmers can swim. Okay, what's that going to do to the rest of the ocean? We don't know, but it's, it, but it's good for a swim. I feel like that's what the Big Ten's doing right now. And they would like to add Notre Dame to that stable. But I think Notre Dame as an independent gives hope to everybody who's not part of the traditional Power Five. It gives hope for, you know, teams like Cincinnati that punched their way into the playoff. And it gives you, uh, you know, there's a path there for, for everybody else. You could throw a bone to everybody else because Notre Dame has been able to frequently get around this playoff. And if I'm Notre Dame, I don't need the Big Ten. And frankly, if I'm the SEC, I don't want the I don't want Notre Dame in the Big Ten. So I feel like the SEC may be a little bit of an ally here. And again, they are fueled by ESPN. So keep an eye on the players as big the Big Ten's media rights deal is unveiled. But it looks like ESPN is not going to have any money in the Big Ten, which is great for who? It's great for the Pac-12 because that's more dollars that are available. For ESPN to sprinkle over the Pac-12 and try to own as much of it as it possibly can. That is not a bad position for the Pac-12 to be in, as long as the dollars are there. But I think it's really interesting to watch what Fox is doing and what the Big Ten is doing. Because if they give NBC a big chunk of their inventory, and they carry a bunch of games on NBC, I wonder if it cannibalizes some of what should have gone to Notre Dame in a year or two when that deal is up. Keep an eye on that. I want you to leave it here. You get the BFT statewide. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
A lot of enthusiasm in the Pac-12 footprint right now for that news coming out of the Sports Business Journal about the Big Ten finalizing their media rights deal with Fox, CBS, and NBC. Uh, I can't help but wonder if uh, it is both good for the Pac-12 and also maybe a preemptive move by the Big Ten to try to eat up some of the NBC dollars that were earmarked for uh, Notre Dame and retaining their rights. Uh, Stephen and Sean, do you guys care where you watch the games as long as they're available? Uh, I don't really. Uh, I just want them to be available, like you said. It, it could be on uh, my phone, which I have to watch it on my phone a lot because of my kids. You know, they're watching TV. So, yeah, I mean, it really doesn't matter to me um, as long as I can get them, get the games. I, I actually do um, because I care about the broadcasters. I care about uh, the production of it. Like, personally, I, I think I enjoy an ESPN broadcast more than a Fox Sports broadcast right now because I like the college game day thing, that, you know, that hypes it up. Uh, they have the college game day for the big 5:30 game every uh, every weekend. I really like Chris and uh, Kirk, and um, I just like the way ESPN does it more than Fox Sports. And plus, uh, you mean you said uh, if it's available, but I I do think there's a world in which I don't know, John. Like this is a question I have for you. Do you ever think there's a world in which, like the MLS, these games could go to like Apple TV? Because in that sense, it's not available, and then we all start caring. Yeah, I I mean, we went through it with the Blazers. I mean, I think a lot of people were shut out of watching the Blazer games for years, and there's people bellyaching about, you know, the fact that they can't stream them everywhere now even. Uh, But I think it changes the way you watch games. It's really frustrating. I I have been frustrated with the Pac-12 steals for years because, you know, as I travel, and I do, I'll end up in, you know, a hotel here or there, and I can't get the Pac-12 network. So I'm watching a game on my phone like Steven, and I'm going, why isn't this game on everywhere? Like, why can't I get this? You know, I just want it available. I, and I'm and like a lot of people, I'm okay paying for it. Like, let's, let's you know, I understand the equation. Like, I, you know, you, I'll subscribe to whatever. But if you put it on Apple TV, I'll subscribe to that and I'll watch all the games. But where I get frustrated is when you just can't get the games. And how absurd it is to be sometimes like at the media hotel covering the Pac-12 basketball tournament. You can't watch the Pac-12 games at the hotel that they are partnered with. And I'm like, hey, you know, you might want to get your games on everywhere. And, I, you know, I, I think right now what the Pac-12 fans would value uh, is knowing that the conference is going to have stability. So I think they're first focused on, hey, is the conference going to do a good deal then and get as much as they possibly can for their members? Uh, uh, then the secondary thing is yeah, how how accessible are the games? And then I think the third thing would be when are the games kicking off? If you guys had to rank those things, I think the kickoff thing is going to become something that we're not even talking about because I think people are going to accept that, hey, if you're selling out to TV, uh, we're okay as viewers watching games at 7 and 7.30. I mean, we may not go in person, but we sort of understand the business of it. Yeah, the, the kickoff times is – Irrelevant to me. I, I don't care when they start, but I'm also a night owl. Like, I like to stay up late, and, you know, a lot of times with me with the kids, they're not even awake at that point. So I don't mind when games start at 7, 30, 8 o'clock. Like, it doesn't bother me uh, at all one bit. I actually, yeah, I think I, I do mind. I like I like my college football Saturdays scattered, and oftentimes um, I'm just disinterested in the 9 a.m. games, you know, or maybe like the, uh, I think some days, sometimes on Saturdays, college football, it really gets going at 12.30. And if they can kind of scatter it a little bit more where you have college football all day, I, to me it, it matters. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I, I think 
I used to get upset about the 7 o'clock and 7.30 kickoff times because I feel like a lot of times I'm advocating on behalf of fans who uh, have families uh, and have kids, and it's not easy to get to a 7 or 7.30 kickoff game. But I now sort of see the value of the media dollars and realize, look, they've all sold out. So as long as you're getting paid, I think we can all kind of understand that that's part of the equation that your teams would not be on. And, you know, and I feel to like a lot of fans. Here's the other thing. Are you like Sean, you in particular? I'm interested in this. You're hanging up by the pool. Okay, you're you're (laughs) classic millennial. You're by the pool. You probably got some contraband that, you know, is in a bottle. You're you're hanging out with your friends. You're listening to music, you know, but. Are you guys buying season tickets to go to anything, or are you just buying a ticket when someone gives you one or makes sense to you? Um, that's a good question. I could see, I could see the latter. Um, it, it's an interesting question for me because, like, right now, I don't, I don't have the income for for season tickets. If I did, I feel like I, I would. Um, want them because the thing with season tickets is that you have you know you have access to every single game so when Utah comes to town like you don't have to compete with other people for those expensive tickets like you know you have your spot and then you can just sell them like you can be a part of the the stub hub party whenever you can't make a game so I do think that season tickets are still a good investment although I can see the perspective of like you know people are busy during Saturdays maybe uh, you just kind of pick and choose you know, in college football, there's only a couple of good games per year, probably at Autzen Stadium. So I could see that perspective as well. But I think if I could afford them, I would certainly invest in season tickets. Yeah, I think for me, and I'm a little older than Sean. I'm 35. I, you know, I know a couple friends that have season tickets too, whether it's the Blazers or the Timbers or the Ducks or the Beavs. And I think it has to do a lot with like continuing the tradition along, right? You know, whether you have a child that's growing up, I think it's good memories you can have tailgating by the games, going to the games together. I think. We're, they're trying to almost put that in their mind, like you know what, this is important to you know have your team that you want to choose and you know do it the right way, right? Like have an affiliation with them. So I think season tickets are still a thing, and especially because, like you said, John, a lot of times these games are on networks that you can't even get. It's 2022, and some people can't even watch the Blazers, or some people can't even watch you know the Pac-12 network, which is insane to me. And so I think sometimes with season tickets, especially for your local teams, I think they they're kind of coming back in in more uh, you know a more uh, better way. Yeah, and I think that you hit on something with sort of the family tradition of going to games, but I am talking more to older people who have been longtime season ticket holders who are going, I'm not doing it right now. And I think we have seen that uh, teams are, I think, doing some things that are more creative in order to try, like, you know, Oregon State, I think, coming up to Providence Park, they're doing it because Reister Stadium is getting a renovation, but I also think they're doing it because they're trying to connect with fans in the Portland metropolitan area and their alumni base that's living in the Portland metro area that doesn't routinely go to games. And they're going, hey, now we're coming to your neighborhood to play a game. Come do this. And we've seen this in the spring with a spring practice that will happen or a summer workout that will happen. And the coaches are getting out and, and I think trying to be more proactive and, and uh, reel in uh, you know, and connect with their alumni base. Uh, some parting thoughts coming up. you got the BFT. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I want to hear from longtime season ticket holders. You've been a ticket holder for a couple of decades, 10 years. I want to hear from you. 
How are you feeling about all of this, your experience? Your, how motivated were you to re-up with uh, Oregon and Oregon State or maybe others if you were a season ticket holder at Washington or Washington State or somewhere else? I want to hear from you. What's your experience been like? 503-417-7575. What do you value? What do you think about when you go to renew? I don't know. I do have season tickets at both places. I largely give them away because I want you to go to games. I'm at the games anyway. But I want to hear from people who make a family decision. Mike is in Salem, 25-year Oregon State season ticket holder joining us. Go ahead, Mike. Well, you know, when we started going to the games years ago, our, we'd get two for one at Bymart. We Four of us would go down there, sit on the fifth year line on the east side for $14 a game, park right on the street. Of course, they didn't win. They were always, you know, crummy. And as things started changing and they opened up the east side, we bought season tickets. That was 25 years ago. And for all this time, it always irritated the hell out of me that we would sit there and 7.30, 8 o'clock starts when they had those games. And I got it. But now, you know, 25 years, and we've been, and we pay 3,500 bucks a year, I think, something like that, for our tickets. And we sit in the club section. It's beautiful ambiance. Everything's fine. But I, for the last couple of years, thinking, you know, I'm getting a little older, and I'm thinking, do I really want to do that? I mean, I'm almost to the point where, you know, I can get the same experience watching the bees on 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 TV, and I'm wondering, do I want to spend another 3,500 bucks every year? So yeah, it's it's a decision. It's a decision point. And I think they need to really think about that as far as, as far as fans go because nobody, I mean, you notice it when I'm there, unless it's USC or some big some big name coming into play, those seats are a lot of vacant seats. And so, you know, around where we sit. So, anyway, that's my take on it. And I'm, yeah. I don't know where the team is. I really don't. Yeah, it's really interesting, too, because I think Oregon State and some others, as they, you know, renovate stadiums, are thinking more in terms of, making the stadium cozier, fewer fans, uh, more premium seating. We have seen this in a variety of places because I think they know that the the competition from the television set in the living room is real. I think that they're all well aware. We're seeing these numbers play out nationally. A uh, few more thoughts on, on uh, television broadcast rights. Uh, I, and I'm working on something during the commercial break. I, I reached out to Bob Thompson, the former Fox Sports Network's president. I asked him, what do you think about this leak that just came out that suggests that the Big Ten Conference is not going to have any games on ESPN, that ESPN will be shut out of men's basketball, shut out of football, that the Big Ten is going to go with, uh, likely go with Fox, CBS, and NBC. Um, he wondered if it could be a leak designed to tweak ESPN, because this is still a negotiation. Nothing's done. Uh, the fact that it's coming out now is interesting. It's gone public. I also wonder if this is partially geared at making uh, Notre Dame, giving Notre Dame some second thoughts, or do they think that NBC could steer Notre Dame into, uh, you know, into the Big Ten Conference if they have a relationship with NBC? So I just think it's interesting. There's a lot of tentacles on this thing. Uh, we've talked all the time. We've talked in circles about how people have changed their viewing habits, how they're watching games differently. I find it interesting that, like, we knew 20 years ago that television was changing sports. 
we knew that the money that was being infused, it was finding its ways into player salaries, and that was the first thing. Oh, so-and-so's making a million dollars a year. Oh, that's so much money. Making a million dollars a year, it's too much money. And now we're watching contracts in college football with TV rights and in the NFL and the NBA's deal, which is coming up at the end of the 2024-2025 season. That deal is going to be ridiculous. They are talking about a deal that will be worth three times what the current deal is worth. And, you know, we're talking about, I believe it is a billion and a half dollars on the next NBA television contract. Players are happy about it because the collective bargaining agreement uh, allocates that the, uh, the salary cap is set based upon this revenue. So the players will share in that windfall with owners. Um, it's interesting to me from a standpoint of the Trailblazers. I'm just going to throw this out there. And I know Peter Sampson's coming up. He's got the pulse right here on 750 the game. But I'm wondering if Jody Allen's reluctance to sell the Blazers is in part related to two potential windfalls that are coming down the pipeline. She needs to sell the team. Blazers, uh, you know, need to be sold. They need to be with an owner who cares about them, gives a damn about them. We all know that. I think if you did a Jody Allen favorability poll right now, she'd get about a 2% rating. So she needs to sell the team. But you have a massive windfall that is going to come by virtue of this new TV deal that is going to happen. That deal will go into effect 2024, 2025. But the windfall will come before that as that deal is finalized in the next 18 months. I also think that if you're going to, if you're a believer that the NBA is going to expand in Seattle and Las Vegas, there's probably part of you that would, if you were an owner, would say, hey, the time to sell would be after the TV deal money comes into my pocket and after the potential expansion fees come into the pocket. Now, if you could bake those into the sales price, because we all know those things are coming, if you could bake that into the sales price, you could make that deal today. And I think that's probably what Jody Allen should do. But I also think she is guilty of publicly negotiating with Phil Knight. You know, is that bothering anybody else? Like, let's get that deal done. Let's get this team in the hands of Phil Knight so the Blazers can get busy living instead of dying. Yeah, I've said that before. I think it's the one thing in Portland that would unite the fan base, right? You said 2%. It may be 1%, and that just might be herself and Burt Cole that are voting for approval rating for that. So, yeah, I mean, I think all of Rip City would be on board to get Phil Knight as the owner and get her out of there just because it seems like the sense of direction is not there with her, and it's not the same on the same lines as the Portland fans. I also think... If you're a Blazer fan, there's two different kinds of Blazer fans. There's the Blazer fan who wants to go to games and enjoy it. It's a nice night out. Team's competitive. Had a good time. Got a Chalupa at the end of the night or a McMuffin or whatever they're going to give away at the end of the season if they get 100 points. And and then there's another fan that wants to see the team compete. And right now, I just don't think that this team is built to contend at all. And so where I'm sitting from the vantage point that I'm sitting at is from an entertainment value, is this is a ticket to a Blazer game worth the price of admission right now? I, that is a question. I would argue that the team right now is neither. Like, I don't know that the team's necessarily going to be that fun to watch. They weren't last year. The d- defense has always been terrible, and they're definitely not on the contending side of things. So they need to figure out what they're going to do 
and figure it out fast. I also think um, if you are – it's just a little demoralizing, isn't it? Like, I don't know what it's like for an NBA player to go out onto the court knowing that when the season starts, you, 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 the Blazer players will walk out onto the court and they may say all the right things at media day. They may be happy to be in the NBA, but they can't with a straight face tell you that they're there to win a championship. Like, that doesn't fly. And we know that there are about six teams, eight teams maybe, that can legitimately look you in the eye and say at the beginning of the year, hey, you know what, I, we, we got a chance to win this thing. Um, I, and, I, and I'm thinking to myself, like, how hard would that be it's tough for a fan. It's tough for a media member. How hard do you think that would be for a player to know that you go out and you go into the games and you go, you know, you go into the season knowing you're probably not going to matter. You're just you're out there to play. Like, I don't know. Maybe the players go, hey, look, I'm getting paid. That's what the money's for, Don Draper style. But I just think at some point, if you're somebody who is a fan of the NBA, like it's it, at least the NFL has figured this out. Like, but if you're not Golden State, if you're not Brooklyn or Boston or Milwaukee or Phoenix, maybe the Clippers, maybe Miami, maybe Philadelphia. After that, like, you know, how many teams do you legitimately think have a chance to win this thing? Yeah, I think you're right on. I mean, it's, it's usually about six to eight every year. Then it dwindles down even less as the playoffs start. I mean, every year, uh, you know, there's a lot of times – even this year, the Dallas Mavericks made the Western Conference Finals. They weren't real real contenders. When the Blazers made the Western Conference Finals, they weren't real contenders. There's The Hawks were the year before. There's always a team that gets far to the playoffs that aren't really contenders. So it dwindles down to about four or five when the playoffs actually start. So it, it would have to be a weird feeling. I think a lot of it is just, you know, it is their job, right? Like we all go to our job and we do it and we do it the best of our ability. And that's all that we can control. So I think a lot of guys do look at it that way. And they say, you know what, I'm getting paid to play basketball. I, I guess I got to be happy. Nobody knows what to do with Brooklyn too, because they opened their futures odds opened at like five or six to one at the end of the regular season. They're now sitting at sixteen to one. I just looked it up. Like, like you know, everybody fears the implosion. Brooklyn might not be a bad bet if they can figure out what to do with Kevin Durant, but you know that that's a big problem. Yeah, Durant, Kyrie, and Ben Simmons is not a bad threesome. Like that is a good start to your team right there. Like they all they kind of fit with each other's style as well. So if if they ever figured it out, yeah, that'd be a dangerous team. I want you to leave it here if you're listening on 750 the game. Peter Sampson's coming up. He is going to rock it. Uh the pulse coming up here in uh, just a minute. Uh if you are a loyal listener of this show and you're listening via podcast, Make sure that you subscribe to the podcast. Make sure you give us some feedback and rating, and you can always share the great interviews. Had a great interview in hour number one with Chip Towers of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution talking all about Dan Lanning and the Oregon Ducks and their big game with Georgia coming up. Uh, I will have a post on johnconzano.com shortly about the media rights uh, negotiations that are going on, and I'll tell you what I know. The bald-faced truth not here for a long time, just a good time.